Turkey hunting is one of my favorite things. And one of the key tools I use for turkey hunting is the Onyx Hunt Map. I use it incessantly when I'm hunting turkeys. Being able to find a new piece of public or gaining permission on private opens up opportunities for gobblers. Onyx Hunt has a special offer for you this spring. Use the code MEATEATER to receive 20% off your membership at onxmaps.com hunt. You'll find more birds this season. I'm telling you, I rely on Onyx Hunt when I'm hunting turkeys. It is an invaluable turkey hunting tool. Hey, I'm excited to share our newest sponsor here on the Meat Eater Podcast, which is Poncho Outdoors. The reason I'm excited is I buy their shirts anyways. Dude, they make some good shirts. And they even have an option where if you're like a skinny dude, you can click like the skinny dude thing. It's great. Based in Austin, Texas, Poncho is committed to crafting the world's best outdoor shirts for men. Poncho is only sold on their own website. So head over to ponchooutdoors.com, use code MEATEATER, for a free hat or t-shirt with any purchase of a shirt. Poncho offers free shipping and returns, so you can try them out risk-free. Many of you know Axis deer is considered to be the best-tasting venison on the planet. I've been hearing that for years. And that those deer cause some ecological harm. Well, Maui Nui Venison is bringing those Axis deer to the market. So you can get some fresh cuts and sticks shipped to your door. Visit MauiNuiVenison.com. That's M-A-U-I-N-U-I Venison.com. Use promo code MEATEATER for 20% off your order. This is the Meat Eater Podcast coming at you shirtless, severely bug-bitten, and in my case, underwearless. We hunt the Meat Eater Podcast. You can't predict anything. Presented by First Light, creating proven, versatile hunting apparel from merino base layers to technical outerwear for every hunt. First Light, go farther, stay longer. Holy shit, man, we got so much to, like... People don't even appreciate the the level of work that goes into this because we're right now getting rid of all the stupid stuff we're going to talk about <laughs> to make more room for the main thing we're going to talk about, which is like Clovis points and Folsom points. The hell name's Meaton. Uh, Metin is a, <laughs> a Turkish name. It's Turkish. It's Turkish. My dad is Turkish. He was an immigrant over here. My mom was Irish. Uh, God, this I'll, is shaping up as an American story already, yeah. man. Yeah, I was born in Cleveland. Oh, okay, okay. And hence, I, your, hence your, hence your uh, but you, and you wound up there. Yeah, and I, I teach there. I'm a professor at Kent State, and um, I speak only one language, which is American. And, really? Uh, yeah. They didn't teach you Turkish? Yeah, no Turkish, no Irish. But your father uh, was born in Turkey? He was born in Turkey, yep. And was he? So he was not interested in Clovis Points as a child? No, he wanted me to be a doctor. In fact, I was the first one in several generations of my family not to go into medicine. Yeah, but you are a doctor. Well, medical doctor. Not, yeah, no, I yeah. don't really count that. Yeah, okay, that's cool. I um, actually Googled Metin before the show because I'd never met anybody with that name. Do you know what it means? Yeah, it means to be, well, there's lots of different uh, iterations, depending if it's Arabic or Turkish, but uh, strong in character. Wow. I dig it. So Now, you probably picked the best one, though. What what would be not as interesting? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Uh, yeah. I don't know what Strong in character. Strong in character. But there's other negative meanings? Well, I don't know. Did you find some on Strong Google? Strong was or? the only thing that I saw. Okay. Oh, nice. 
Didn't dig too deep, apparently. I like it, though. Yeah. That was good enough for me. That's all right. That sounds good. And uh, tell everybody what your PhD is in. It is in uh, archaeology, um, but I ha- also have degrees in experimental archaeology and anthropology. My specialty is where I recreate ancient weapons and tools, and then we reverse engineer them to figure out how they work. Um, so we actually have the world's premier experimental archaeology lab at Kent State, where we have our own ballistics range and engineering equipment and flint napping area and forge and pottery really? studio. Yeah, it's awesome. And God, I'm going to come down there. Yeah, <laughs> we can make any artifact. Can you guys give me like an honorary degree? That, yeah, I, <laughs> I can start working dude. on that. I'd like yeah. to rack up a couple good. honorary degrees. I like how spear is right in the title there, too. Oh, yeah. Like, I'm experimental. Oh, oh he put oh, spear oh, back yeah, into experimental. Yeah, come back to my <laughs> uh, ballistics lab. <laughs> So if you just type that into Google, you'll you'll find our website, and we have a master's that you can apply for and and get your master's in uh, experimental archaeology if you're interested, and we can do. You guys do like ceramics, we do leathers, everything. whatever, whatever. We've had musicians, we've had tattoo artists. Oh no shit, really? Yeah, yeah. I mean, huh. we. I mean, look, good grades are important. So stay in school, kids. Um, but like, what we are really interested in are skills that that are, are take years to develop, right? And, and outside of the box thinking that comes with those skills, um, we can teach you the science and what a hypothesis is and how to design a test. But what we can't teach you is, you know, the, the 20 years it took for you to learn the viola or the, the 15 years to become a tattoo artist or a hunter or a craftsman or whatever. Um, so we welcome all sorts of people with, with sort of out-of-the-box skills to, to apply for our program. Because we can use those skills in experimental archaeological tests because people in the past made stuff out of all sorts of materials. Um, and so uh, we want to learn all of it. We do got to talk about a couple things. We're going to get into this right away because, you know, I teased this episode the other day where I saw an article. You were probably involved in it saying basically the headline was like, Clovis ain't all that. And it said they couldn't actually get anything because their point sucked. Pretty much. Yeah. You think that's true? Well, okay. If that's so, the case, let's cancel the let's cancel this, and we're going to put all the other stuff back in, and not going to talk about it. So I think <laughs> <laughs> the issue is not that the Clovis points suck; it's just that they're not like a Stone Age AK forty-seven. They're not a Paleolithic bazooka where basically you can wake up one day and just decide, you know what, I'm going to get me a mammoth. I haven't had mammoth in a while, so yeah. so there. Were, were you involved in that paper? I was the first author of that paper. Uh, so see, I wasn't up to speed at the year that I knew. <laughs> yeah, I knew it was sh- showing around. Um, Why did they? Suck? Did, you know, that, I just... said that I said what they're trying to do is emasculate Clovis. Do you feel that you're trying to emasculate Clovis? Oh no, not at all. Because Clovis folks that use Clovis technology are awesome. You think they're badass? Oh yeah, definitely. Um, so it's possible to love to stop worrying and love Clovis. Definitely. I just think mammoths, <laughs> in some ways, were more badass. That's a good way of looking at it. Yeah. So. Um. We're going to solve – are you prepared to do this too? And this is something that, that uh, you know, Clay and I have uh, – Clay Newcomb, there's a, one of the guys we work with. He has a very wonderful podcast um, called Bear Grease. And he and I are often on like little parallel paths of discovery. And he was recently doing a piece about the Folsom type site. Okay. And invited a guest of his to knock the channel flake out of a Folsom point. Okay. Are you prepared to knock a channel flake out of something? Oh, Definitely. Right here in front of my very eyes. Yeah, I brought. Did you know, I got these brand new glasses on. Well, I brought goggles as well, so nothing will get in anyone's eyes. Brody alerted nice. me to the fact that you could buy five pairs for like ten bucks. Oh yeah, which I feel like is probably not good for your eyeballs, but that's what I did. Because I'm sick. Of, I had one pair and lost them. Now I'm gonna have sons of bitches everywhere. 
I don't think they're bad for your eyes. I think the other the other thing's bad for your wallet. It's a racket. Yeah, but two bucks, man. Looking through something that costs two bucks <laughs> seems like not a good idea to me. Mine even had a sticker that said two dollars on them. I well, know. no, I was wrong. I thought it was, then I realized it meant two X. Oh, you're up to two, man. Yeah, yeah. Getting bad. Uh, quick question for Hayden. Uh, yep. How come so many days have gone by and you haven't fixed the artwork? I was actually going to get in touch with you, but you were in Mexico, and I was going to ask if you wanted to uh, have that uh, buffalo print more professionally framed before I went and hung it up. Easy now, man. Why because, are you hiding oh, it in the, the bottom one? Yeah. Okay. Jamie, no, the top so one's very Jamie, nice. yeah, Jamie Wild Art sent. That's a custom. Yeah. That's from a no, dream. It's very nice. It's from a dream vision of mine, of uh, of wolves eating a buffalo alive, and. And pulling its intestines out and eating it while it stands yeah, there. Yeah, I think it captures the reality. And there. she sent that framed. The gentleman that did that buffalo skull uh, sent it in a nice frame, mm-hmm. and the frame broke. Yeah. And so Kylie went and got it. So it's more of an issue between you and Kylie. Oh. Well, well, I was expecting <laughs> you to lower the one and raise the other one like you had said. You know, I, I mean, I didn't ask you to do it. You just offered it up. I, I didn't want to rank them. Just weird. <laughs> That's all. Good to be here. But uh, Hayden... <laughs> I'm going to compliment Sandwich you. Okay. No, it's too late, isn't it? <laughs> no, but you can tack one on to the end, sandwich. man. Well, let me <laughs> go back. Be like, you look great today. Thanks. And then the top compliment is um, tell everybody what you just made because that was the best thing I ever ate. Oh, well, thanks, man. Uh, it was a, uh, a bourbon liver and smoked trout pate. Mm. And uh, yeah. What was the grease on top? Uh, that was just bacon fat. Oh. Just strained bacon yeah, fat. Yeah, just keep it nice. Yeah. Oh, it was good. Fat cap. Yep. Thanks, man. Really good. Yeah. First bourbon, too. So six pounder. Yeah. Uh, their liver is like what? 20% or something like that? Yeah. It's some outrageous percentage of their body weight. Yeah. Yeah. It, it was huge, man. I just saw it. I was like, oh, there's no way you could chuck that thing. It just looked good to eat. Doesn't uh, taste livery either. No, yeah. my friends in Alaska turned me on and just taking it. They just cut it thin. And you know, you don't want to sit there and eat it for an hour, but it's kind of fun. Let's like drink a beer or whatever, crackers. They cut the liver thin. And don't put oil in the pan because there's so much oil in it, anyways. Yeah, and just give it like a little psh, psh on a hot on a hot dry skillet. And yeah. that's burbot liver. Burbot liver. Yep. Chester, you should eat some of that and see if it screws you up. There's just no trout in it though. I, I, just that, just smear trout, some on your eye or something. It's the trout, man. <laughs> yeah. No, 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 no. Burbot liver. See if you have a reaction to burbot oh, liver. Oh, burbot liver. Yeah. Just smear some on your eye and see if it gets itchy. <laughs> or however they do it down there. I don't know. Yeah. Um, Chester, can you super quick give us an update on the walleye situation? Yeah. Um, Seth and I are growing. Our excitement is just like going through the roof because yeah. we have a few. I can hear it in your voice. <laughs> Listen, man. We're very excited about this. <laughs> we have quite a few uh, people reaching out to us and wanting to have a further conversation of what getting us a boat for the summer would, would look like in terms of maybe partnerships and whatnot. Oh, and, uh, great news. yeah, it's some great companies. Um, you can name that boat, the Steve Arino. If it comes through this, the, the fact that I'm always trying to promote it. That's a, that's a decent name, but man, there's just so many other boat names out there. That yeah, there really are. <laughs> there really are. We could pick. The biggest thing here is there's going to be two boats sitting idle. No. For the summer. If they do get, <laughs> A walleye boat sponsorship, which no. means oh the rest yeah, of us if you guys get like greatly. a real boat, that boat, those other two boats are going to spend their summer as like company boats. Really? 
Oh yeah. Well, <laughs> no, no, <laughs> that's no, no, yeah, th that's that's fair. I, anybody, if we get this one bow, anybody is welcome to use my bow anytime. And also, not I not during tournament season because what if you got to have it ready to go? I'm well. Yeah, I'm saying just in general, like with all of the boats, my boat. I'm sure I can speak for Seth too. My boat, Seth's <laughs> boat, this company boat, like. I want to get out fishing as much as I can. So anybody that wants to go fishing, um, you know, let's go fishing. Yeah. I mean, so you got to share the wealth. So if a if a if a prominent boat manufacturer, and this is a race, a prominent boat manufacturer comes and says, "I want in, I want Chester and Seth to do this walleye tournament series for Meat Eater in our boat." Because it would give us more marketing impressions than perhaps any other thing we've ever engaged in. <laughs> you're saying that. I mean, you're. When that happens, this boat will be. Other people will be allowed to fish this boat. Of course. Yeah. And what what is the ideal walleye boat look like for in Montana? Um. Well, there's a bunch of different things for the ideal walleye boat in general is. A bigger boat because a lot of <laughs> no, no, like I mean, like an 18, 19, 20 foot glass boat, fiberglass boat is ideal. You want something that's a little heavier. Reason being is because a lot of great walleye fishing in this area is on bigger reservoirs. And once the wind picks up and starts ripping, if you're in a little 16 foot boat like the one I have currently, it can actually be dangerous. So, meaning like you could be trapped out there, swamp your boat, um, because of the waves. Is it fair to say that these major boat manufacturers are toying with your life, Chester? <laughs> no. Cause they could, by their, their lack of a response, their inactivity could actually lead to your drowning. Is that fair to say? <laughs> well, just think of the yes. jump. I'm a pretty careful dude. <laughs> the jump a boat manufacturer who wants to get into the bigs is going to have. By picking these guys up. Oh, yeah. There's there's a design out there that's just been waiting for its opportunity to be big. Chet and Seth are going to take it to the top. Mm-hmm. Mega impressions. Mm-hmm. Do you have to do anything official to become a pro? This is going to do for walleye boats what Over the Top did for arm wrestling. That's right. People are going to be switching their hats <laughs> around backwards, mm -hmm. saying, turn it on. Yeah. <laughs> Brody, I don't, I think, I mean, yeah, to become a pro, I think you got to, one, be entered into like a pro circuit. Um, and I, it depends on the series, like bass tournaments. I know like there's, to be considered a pro, you have to have a certain amount of winnings. There's like sponsorships involved. There's like pro tournaments that you. So you guys got to work your way up to that. Yeah. But I, my goal to this whole thing is like, I don't need to be a pro. I want to become the best angler that I can be. And catching walleye and figuring walleye out is a very good way to become a good angler in multi Like, if you can figure out how to catch walleye, you can be a pretty dang good bass angler. Um, things like that. So It's tugging at my heartstrings, man. <laughs> I'm so excited, especially now that Seth doesn't have to, that he can do all the tournaments. Oh, because he, the Oh, did, did we get the wedding adjusted? Yeah, because did you hear what we found out? <laughs> That in Montana, it's one of very few states, oh, it's one of yeah. a couple states where you can have a proxy. Yeah, you, can have your, a proxy. Yeah, you don't Perfect. need to be at your own wedding. Um, <laughs> problem solved. Some people see problems, we see solutions. <laughs> We're going to get back to this Stone Point stuff hardcore yeah, in a second. Awesome. Uh, 
Oh, you know what I was, I flew today and I was, you know, uh, Salt Lake City has those huge, I had to fly home this morning. Salt Lake City has those enormous escalators. Like the amount of people that don't walk on there and just stand there. Oh yeah. It's like, you're, you're in such good shape. You're in such good shape that you don't even need to uh, get this little bit of exercise. That's how good a shape you're in. That's what you're telling me. Sounds like you were about to miss your flight, huh? <laughs> I was. <laughs> but I was like, oh, so everybody's so well exercised, they can afford to just stand here. Well, I don't even think it's that. It's like very rarely in an airport for me, am I not needing to get to another place? And so when the escalator's there, I'm not like, oh, this is doing it for me. You I'm walk like, too. If I just keep walking, I'm there faster. It's meant to like, yeah, it's meant to make your efforts pay off even better. Yeah, like the moving walkways, yeah, like standing you, you on still one of those would keep drive moving. me insane. Oh my God, it drives me nuts. Uh, to go positive for a minute, um, Bro- Brody and I are going to talk about something for the until people can't stand hearing about it anymore, but we're going to start talking about it right now. So uh, when I had children, when I began having children in 2010, was when my boy was born, um, the, uh, it really hit me like, um, how do you sort of like, as a person that grew up, um, outdoors hunting and fishing and had like what I regard to be like a very sort of productive educational relationship to, um, nature and the outdoors. And I had kids and right away, I'm like, God, like, I want to like do that for them. And it's hard. Um, and even back then I thought, Someday I want to like do a book about kids in the outdoors, which is largely about, it has a lot to do with just the anxieties that come from having kids and and wanting to engage them around nature and just how fucking hard it is. Yeah, it's, it's so hard. hard to get everyone out the door. That's the hardest part by far. I mean, you know. The mittens and cleaning the up dirty kits and stuff along the way and co- dealing with cold kits is, is difficult, but getting them out there is the, the, the hard part. Uh, I remember one of the things I remember when my kids were really little, taking them up to our fish shack, and I was trying to, uh, I, was, I was imploring my wife, I'm like, we're not going to bring a ton of clothes. They got to learn to wear them dry. They got to learn to wear them dry. You get it wet, you just keep it on. I'll be like, I wear the same clothes seven days in a row. It gets wet, you wear it, it dries, and you don't need all these clothes. So she, I finally like get her convinced to go on this wear it dry program, and we get there, and my little boy, my littlest boy at the time, wades out to his belly button out in the salt water and shits his pants. <laughs> <laughs> and so I'm being like, she's like, yeah. My wife's like, wear this dry. <laughs> It's like everything is so hard. Yeah. The amount of times I've seen your youngest kid get wet is unbelievable. Yeah. It's about every time you he's can't go like, near the water. You know what my goal is? <laughs> I'm gonna go get wet. Whether it's jumping in an ice hole, taking his shoes off with his socks in the mud when we're salmon fishing. Um, yeah, we've laughed a hundred times about last year ice fishing. I can't remember if it was my birthday. Was your- ice fishing last year, and my daughter skating up. Her and her brother are in the shanty, and her riding up on ice skates saying, I got bad news, and there isn't any good news. (laughs) Matthew fell in the hole. Uh, Both feet. Both feet into one hole, which is like seems impossible. (laughs) 
fish shack when uh, your oldest broke his arm right immediately before mm-hmm. the trip. And so you have a kid, I, he was young, kid in a cast with the very serious warning of do not get this wet. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I mean, it was like maybe six, it was less than a professional bull ride for sure. Like maybe, <laughs> maybe six seconds, right? And it's like, we're unloading stuff at the fish shack and you turn around and he's just like elbow deep. <laughs> like, and you're like, huh, that'll wear that dry. In the, in the book I'm about to plug, I actually talk about that because um, my wife not coming from a outdoors background, always thinks that everything um, that I take the kids to is like dangerous or used to. Like, oh, guns are dangerous. Hunting's dangerous. Wild animals. Every time my kids wind up in a um, emergency room, it's because of something she did. <laughs> Got him a swing set. Broken arm. Got him a Lego kit. Stitches in his head from falling on a Lego. <laughs> Got him a scooter. Stitches in his head from the scooter. Every time, it was like, that was your thing. All my super dangerous shit, no one's ever had any problem. Just getting wet. No, they get wet. She <laughs> does something for them and they break a bone. Didn't you guys get a little visit from like yeah. Child Protective Services no, at one God, point too, right? Man. Like, they're like, so... Yeah, we could one of them, he got hurt and we here. weren't looking and, and they kept keeping us there and dragging it on and eventually they come in and this guy comes in and the first thing out of his mouth is like, um, what are the strengths and weaknesses of your marriage? I'm like, Are you kidding me, man? <laughs> yeah. Like he got a hurt his leg. Uh jumping off the couch. <laughs> so, anyways, uh available for pre order now. Brody and I have worked on this book a bunch. Um, outdoor kids in an inside world. It was it was a it was a project, man. Yeah, it's available for pre-order all over the place. Yep. And, uh, Get it now. It uh, was a release date May second or yep. something like that. And it's a, it's it's an argument. It's insight. It's an argument for and insights into getting your kids, uh, as we put it, radically engaged with nature. That's awesome. I uh, have a six-year-old. Oh, and uh, I've been worrying about this quite a lot. Just getting him outside because he's on. TV and video games and all this sort of sure. stuff. I got him a dog. And now he's outside with the dog all the time, walking him, all this sort of stuff. So little victory. Little victory, but it's you know, you gotta keep at keep it's at it. It's a battle. It is a battle, but battle. it's one of the most important things I think as parents we can do today is get kids outside. Oh yeah, I think so. I think for both in terms of engagement with um like just engagement with ecology and engagement with environmental issues and also just ha- having like a little grit and gur, man, like I don't know. I see value in it. I'm not saying it's it's the only way. There's like many paths to like many paths to, you know, I know I have great friends who raise kids in Manhattan and their kids are brilliant, compassionate, wonderful, right? Like they don't do really anything outside. I'm not saying that that's the only way to get somewhere, but especially a situation like me is where that's the stuff that I value. And I want to like take my bag of tricks and apply it to parenting. Definitely. You know, because like I want them to see people doing things that they're passionate about. So it's like, and I see people all the time, like everybody names their kid Hunter. There you go. That's what they're hoping for. Yeah. But you know. They need this book. We've been outside for 6 million years. I mean, so why stop now? Exactly. Available for pre-order now. That was a spirited pitch. Oh, Brody and Cal both got something with a tag in it. Can you guys explain? Cal. 
Did you know that he got some of the tag in it? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I caught a tagged yellow perch the other day through the ice down on uh, uh, Lake Cascade in Idaho, um, which is a marketing term, right? It's, it's a reservoir. But <laughs> <laughs> nevertheless, what, chalk- do you, what do you think they should have called it? Cascade Reservoir? Yeah. Oh, okay. They yeah. should call it yeah. Jumbo Perch. Yeah, reservoir. I know. I mean, 31,000. Well, put it this way. There's one tagged fish for every 37 acres of that lake. Which is and just... Cal got one. Yeah. I, I mean, I was so excited. So excited. It was just... I, I mean, I, I love that stuff. And it's... Uh, you know, it's like getting a tag... Or a banded duck or banded goose or something like that. Did it have a Get like a phone knowledge. number on it for you yeah. to call? Yeah. Yep. So it's a coded wire tag. You know, it's not like a tracking tag or a transmitter tag or anything like that. But yeah, so you, you can call in. Um, Did you just call and act I, like? I called on on the. Unfortunately, it's like automated. You know. Oh. Um, and they're you know and then they're doing like the normal biologist thing of like. Well, we got you on the line. We're going to try to extract even more information from you. You know, like how far did you drive? Did you enjoy your experience? How would you rate your experience? Did you like the fish? How would you rate your fish? How far did you drive? Oh, I mean, it's... Because they're wanting to know, like, what your level of commitment was. Right. It was a long, I mean, yeah. a long haul. Tell them I'd rather not get into that. Bozeman to oh. uh, Cascade Reservoir. Uh, <laughs> did you save the tag? Do you get to keep it? Yeah. I mean, I had every intention of keeping the tag. And I put it in the front pocket of my bibs. And I must have, you know, I had other fish and stuff in there, and I must have been rummaging around. You were keeping out. your fish in the front pocket of your bibs? I was keeping just the tag in oh. the front pocket of the bibs. Okay. Because it was very obvious to remember which fish it was, because it was a 15 and a half inch, two plus pound perch. Hold So you put the tagged fish in the pocket, or you pulled the tag out and put Pulled the tag out, as if to, I'm at that you. point, I, I, I was like, no. I thought you, you had a bunch of fish in, in your pocket. I'm going to keep it. Yeah. Yeah. Make um, an earring out of it. But I have I have all the data. Oh, because you did get it you did get it. You lost it after getting everything you needed. Right. Don't you think it'll turn up though? Yeah, I hope so. I looked looked all over. Um but yeah, that I mean that was super cool. Like what 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 are the odds and the fact that it was a huge fish? Um and really just you know, like looking on the map looking for old river channels and stuff and poking holes through the ice. There wasn't anything like super crazy about it. You know, it was just mm-hmm. a serious luck of the draw thing. And I don't win anything. So that was fun. Um, yeah. Did yeah, you get great, any, man. Did you get any information on that fish? Oh, yeah. yeah. Like yeah. as far as like how old it was? Uh, not age. Because it was tagged as a grown-up, right? Right. Yeah. yeah. But it was uh, tagged a year prior Basically a year prior at 14.6 inches in length, and it we measured it at 15 and a half inches in length. So the odd anomaly there is that it grew really, really fast in comparison to all their other fish. Like their mm-hmm. rates of growth are, are real slow. Which I pointed out to Cal um, is actually a – Negative commentary on his angling skills. Right. It's like that fish would eat anything. Because he caught the weird fish that ate everything. <laughs> yes. Um, the what One of the most amazing things that I learned down there was that um, they, they've taken a lot of pictures of the growth the growth rings on their gill plates. Oh, that is and they're, interesting. And they're gorgeous. 
Um, and on, so the otolith, that ear bone that you typically read about folks aging fish off of, well, on yellow perch, the, um, the big gill plate with the little spike on the back, uh, actually you can age as well. And you just boil that thing out, scrape the meat off of it, put it underneath the, um, I think backlight it and you should be able to see some rings. If you can get a microscope, you can see all the rings. Uh, and that's, that's cool. We should mess around with that a little bit. Get Definitely. like, get it set up for that. Yeah. Be real fun. You're going to get it stuffed so, or you're going to eat it? What is, oh, I already ate it. Um, <laughs> oh, you know, that might've been a good idea to get it stuffed with well, the tag in it. So here's the but, funny but thing. But getting fish stuffed is all a lie. They Here, don't stuff the fish. They don't stuff the fish, which is fine because then you can release it if you want to. You can get the measurements and pictures and release it. And, right. Listen, man. I see what you're getting at. It's a lie. It's a lie. <laughs> it's it's a big fish tail. But so here's the funny thing. Like I sent that picture to Chester and Seth and like, oh, that'd be something to consider actually mounting. And I was like, yeah, it kind of would be neat. And what would that be like? Well, um, I'm talking with the biologist at Fishing Game, uh, Jordan Messner. And he's like, yeah, hey. This is the Idaho Fishing Game. Yeah. Yep. And he's like, hey, swing in to the office. We have a reproduction of the world record catch and release perch. And I was like, all right, sweet. <laughs> so going to the office, I'm looking at all the mounts on the wall. Well, I, right? I, I, can you back up? Yes. Okay. Why were you on the phone with him? Uh, I had to re- return his hockey skates. I borrowed his hockey <laughs> skates. <laughs> uh, oh, and while, okay. And while arranging this hockey skate drop off, he yes. says you ought to. Yep. I got you. Yeah, because yeah. I was skating during the I didn't the day. know if you were conversing with him about the tagged perch. No, oh. I, I actually called him. He was on the ice about a quarter mile away from us. Yep. And he zipped over and checked it out. It was awesome. Um, and uh, and we got into a bunch of arguments on stuff, and you know, it was very educational. But um, in the office, looking at all the mounts and stuff, right? And uh, he comes in, and he's like, yeah, there it is. And I'd been looking at this fish, and it didn't strike me as abnormally large or anything. He climbs up on the wall, pulls the mount down. He's like, yeah, here, check it out. And, you know, at the end of the day, it's just a 15 and a half inch fish, you know? Yeah. It's not. You're like, I got one of those in my pocket. Out of context. (laughs) Out of context. It's just, like, not that impressive. But when you're out there perch fishing and pulling perch up through the ice... I mean, I was on cloud nine. I was incredibly excited, stoked. Oh my God, the mouth comes up and you're like, I can put my whole thumb in that thing. Yeah, no, it is. It's hard. It's like a little bit hard to talk about big perch because a big perch is still a small fish. Yeah. And so people are thinking they're going to see a big fish, but they see what to them is a small fish. And then you have to go into this whole thing about how it's actually a big perch. Right. It's like like the the key's white tail, right? You're like, yeah. well, actually, that's not like. Yeah, exactly. Right. This is no, this is a very big right. version of a very small thing. And the thing you get all the time is, uh, is that your first year? <laughs> uh, yeah, right. Uh, um, but it was cool. It was all right, great. Brody, you got a tagged cow elk. I did, yeah. Didn't notice it was tagged until I was cutting her ivories out because it was it was pretty small. Um, oh, yeah. Oh, here's the tag. Yep, oh, it's like shit. an earring. I'm gonna put my spectacles back on. Hold on. Metal ear tag. Um, so that was that was pretty interesting. They leave well, you they leave that. you a phone number on there to call. Hold which, on, which, you're, you're in violation of the law right now. No, I'm not. It says I return. Talk to the biologist. Oh, because it says return to <laughs> MFWP. I'm gonna call Brody and report him right now yeah, on the show. Go for it. Um, 
Are they letting you keep this? He didn't ask for it back. What uh, What's the stats on the cow? How old uh, was she when she got she this? She was tagged on February 1st, 2014. So that was eight years Whoa. ago. Wow. Tagged yeah. three miles from where I shot her. So not all that far for an elk. Um, and uh, she was, I think he said she was two and a half years old when she was tagged. So she's going on 11 years old. Did you feel bad hearing that? No. She was a big ass cow. I'll tell you that. Um, her eye, look how, look at how worn down her eyes. Oh yeah, are. man. She's knocking on heaven's door there. Yep. But, uh, she was in great shape. She was huge. Wow. Look at that. She the lead cow. Cause see bolt like. No, she's like, there's about a hundred of them and she was like, it's a long story, but. I've never seen an ivory to look like that. I know. Could you pretty much pull those things out with your fingers? No, no, no way. Hand she, that down no. to Callahan. Has he seen that yet? Wow. No, they were anchored in there fine. Hand no, she wasn't too. a lead cow, Chester. She was just one of a hundred. Um, there was an albino in the herd, which was real, real cool to see. The biologist. How come we didn't shoot that one? Because it was surrounded by a oh. hundred other elk. This one was off to the side, you know. Yeah, um, these ivories are not like ivories that much different than their actual like milk teeth that that you'd pull out of a well out of yeah calf. those milk teeth on calves are real narrow and pointy though right um the uh that's awesome oh you were asking about the albino yeah no interest in, in shooting it the, the biologist knew about that elk said, no kidding oh yeah he said he knew he, he knew that that herd pretty yeah well. that demystif that demystifies it Yep, yep. Um, Remember we covered this? Remember there was like a famous uh, moose in New Hampshire or something. It was, it was kind of piebald or albino, and a guy got it, and everybody got pissed. Yeah. Because mm -hmm. they'd been seeing it around. I mean, they yeah. see all of them around, because remember that one. They if I'd on only seen one and it was albino, I don't know what I'd do. But, um, yeah, I learned some interesting stuff. Uh, that herd that I shot her out of, the biologist said there it, it's triple what he would like to see. The numbers in population, yes, yeah, too many animals. I mean, I, I'm just telling you what yeah, an it. actual scientist it. told me. I got it, but 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 I, I know a few of those fellas, and um, that's great. But it's I always ask, like, according to who? Okay, I'm going to give you an example, like because like he said, the next herd to the south, which you cannot hunt, it's in the same unit, but there's a boundary that you can't cross. That herd you can't hunt because they're much lower than what he'd like to see. Hmm. Have they considered just driving some, uh, scurrying some over that way? <laughs> well, <laughs> maybe I don't, air dropping them in there. But you know, I, I thought it was an interesting example. Is it of like a carrying capacity herd. thing, or is it a social issue? I'm sure it's a combination of both. Yeah. This herd, he said, spends the majority of its time on private land, so that social part might be part of it. Yeah. Yeah. Listen, I'm not down on the social thing. I'm just saying, like, when yeah. I hear, like, you know, you hear, I, I, this kid that called me, I can't figure it out. There's this kid that reached out, and I, uh, he's he wanted to interview me. Like, he, he his state doesn't, he's a high schooler. His state doesn't have a black bear hunt. Maybe he's from Connecticut. I can't remember. And he wrote a really nice letter that Corey forwarded along to me. State doesn't have a black bear hunt. He's making, like, a class. He has to do it. He has to make a documentary for his class in high school. Mm -hmm. And he wants to make a documentary about how they should have a black bear hunt and he wanted to interview me and like his documentary focus is going to be that if we don't have a black bear hunt, there'll be too many black bears and it'll cause all these problems. And I said, call me, you're barking up the wrong tree. 
and he hasn't called me. Like, that's not going to, conv- like, no one's going to be like, we're just overrun with, you know How what I mean? High school. I was going to say, no high schooler wants to go rewrite their thesis. Yeah, like, <laughs> like, or maybe you just, we're, I, I'm just saying like, you're not like, like, that's not a convincing argument to people. Like people aren't going to picture. Yeah. They're not, it, it's like, there's a hundred other ways to approach it, but approaching it like that all the time. Is like, yeah. oh, if we don't, we're going to be overrun by bears. It's like, ah, probably not. Probably I at not. least thought it was interesting that it was a case of like herd by herd management, yeah, right? Yeah. Like, yeah, I got you. I'm, I'm just like, uh, it's just people I think will jump a little bit. I used to just accept it at face value, over like over objective, right, right. overpopulated. And then, but once you get into it, you realize there's just a, a million factors that go yeah. like, according to who? Is it like automobile insurers have a perspective yeah. on deer numbers, right? Uh, AAA has a perspective on deer numbers. Agriculture has a perspective on deer numbers. Um, subdivisions with a lot of expensive, uh, what do you call it, landscaping, have a perspective on deer hunter, deer numbers. And it doesn't always mirror the perspective of a deer hunter. Yep. Deer, I'm, trying, I'm saying deer, deer numbers. Yeah. That's all. You know all this. Um, I got one hot uh, fact I forgot to throw in there on the perch. How, how old is perch? How old is the oldest perch? Yeah. 21 years old. Oh, that's high. I hate people do that to me. I know. Can I redo tough. it? Seven. Yeah, sure. Anybody so, else? Fish. 11. 12. 9. 16. So prior to Lake Cascade, <laughs> which now has, I think, two world records and, and all the Idaho state records, um, there is a... a perch aged i think in wyoming at nine years old okay now lake cascade is just like in this crazy zone of like they're positive these fish are dying of old age not sure at what rate but uh their oldest recorded perch is 14 oh just a Special perch place. Yeah. Are they worried about yeah. that fishery crashing? You know how perch <clears throat> populations can just... So it's gone through several down. down down periods, um, but it's like what's considered a crash type of thing. And, and a, a perch crash is typically like that missing age class mm-hmm. and and how strong the next age class is or the, the previous age class was to where anglers will notice it. Yeah, right. so but sometimes it'll change. Crashes. Like you'll have a fishery with like big fish, like they have there, and then something happens, and it's just a lot of little fish. Yeah, you boys yeah. might have to take this offline. Yeah, All yeah, right. it's a good one. Sorry. <laughs> uh, speaking of records, that was good, Corinne. Speaking of records, a uh, guy wrote in about uh, he's curious. Like he was disappointed to see that in Boone and Crockett, you can't enter a squirrel. There's yeah, no do it just like a bear. Yeah, and he's like, yeah, but he's like, well, how would you measure it anyways? And I was going to explain to him that anything that doesn't have antlers is just skull size. So like black bears, there's nothing to do with turkey. Yeah, but I think I think that that's a. I don't mean to be Debbie Downer today, but the way they do turkeys, I think, is a real stretch. Because what do you dislike about it? Because it has multiple beards, you get to keep measuring all the beards. If you had multiple antlers, you'd keep measuring the antlers. (laughs) 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 All right. Okay. Explain the turkey. Well, let me do this first. Uh-huh. With the exception of turkeys, everything I'm aware of in the mammal, okay, let me put it this way. Everything I'm aware of in the mammal kingdom, in the mammal world, it's not a kingdom, is it? What is it? In mammals, uh, 
If it doesn't have antlers, you just measure its length and width of skull. I don't so, think I can argue with that. So to be consistent, I don't think he's the one. Or can he, should they measure the tail, the weight? I think it's just it would just wind up needing to be like if you're going to do a fox squirrel world record, I think you'd have to keep keep it clean and you do length of skull plus width of skull, and it's just like that's how lot, mountain lions, bears, javelinas, it's like all that stuff's done that way. So I don't think you could break from that. Mm-hmm. But Spencer brings up the very good point that they came up with what he's after for squirrels in the turkey world. So he'd be like, he'd be like weight of squirrel plus inches of tail, yada, yada, yada. You've mm-hmm. got a personal stake in this, right? No. Why? I thought you did. I thought you had some kind of record. I, I have the South Dakota archery real grand record. Okay. You do? Yeah. It was a triple bearded bird I shot in. <laughs> so that's a non-typical record, right? <laughs> so, <laughs> so you've done what I'm talking about where you keep measuring the beards. Yeah, I, I like scoring them. It's just like, Fun okay, explain to how to score a turkey. So I, off the top of my head, I think you figure out the spur length on both legs, and then you take that times 10. So if you have one spur is one inch, <laughs> the other spur yeah. is... <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay. So, so you, you got, you know, two inches where the spur Because that makes 10, a lot of sense. You got 20. I think you take all your beard lengths times two. <laughs> sure. And then you have your weight, which there's no modifier on. Well, why not? Why not be like in times that by three? Well, I think my guess. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't invent it. the scoring. It's to uh, like make the numbers fairly even. Oh, so I see. Yeah, because you, you, you have a twenty-two pound turkey sure. who has two-inch spurs. Now you have twenty uh, plus twenty-two, yep. and then say oh. you have a nine-inch beard times two eighteen. Oh. so they're fairly like they're uh, trying to give equal weight to all these things because some guy could shoot. I get it because. You shoot a turkey, he's a little light on weight. Uh-huh. He's been rutting hard, hasn't yep. been eating. <laughs> but he's got like big limb hangers. Right. Big hooks. Yep. And that guy's going to get screwed. I like this guy's idea. Um, I think one issue would be overall weight. There's not a lot of critters you shoot where they may lose weight because of like where your 22 bullet passed through or mm-hmm. something like yep. that. Did you ever hear my, my turkey competition story? No. So... I was enrolled in the some town by Doug Dern, and Doug Dern doesn't like people from this town. It's uh, Elroy. Yeah, this is a whole <laughs> funny story. Have I told? I feel like I told the story a thousand times. Yeah, you times. told it. Okay. the the hor- the 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 drunkards of Elroy uh, had a turkey derby, mm-hmm. and uh, I'm mo- I'm mostly joking about Doug's distaste for Elroy. <laughs> Doug talks about Elroy like it's the other side of the planet, but it's like about a five minute drive away. It's so funny about it because he's like, talks like, oh my God, over in Elroy. I'm like, Doug, it's, it's right there. It's a Wisconsin thing. <laughs> so anyways, and El- I was signed up for the Elroy Turkey Derby and it just goes by weight of bird, but I gutted my turkey. Ugh. So I bring it down, but it was a huge turkey and I bring it down and I was like leading and then I got beat by some other guy, but not like a guts worth of lead. He beat me by like, not a gut, like a full gut amount. Mm-hmm. Days later, we stop in that bar because this guy we're hunting with had to go find his old man who's always down there. And we go in, and they're still sitting there. He gutted the turkey! <laughs> they're still sitting at the bar talking about it days later. What an idiot. <laughs> yeah, I go snoot to tail. That's a big thing now. Yeah, What's the on? hunting public guy started that. You, you lay your bird. turkey flat, and it's the long bird measurement. You, you stretch the snoot out as far as possible, and then you go from the tip of that all the way to the furthest tail feather. That's I don't like any of this stuff, man. <laughs> yeah. I don't like any of this stuff. I think it should be this. It's stretch just it. like it's like spur snoot. length. It's spur. It should be subspecies, but it's not actually a subspecies, but subspecies. Mm-hmm. Spur length. 
Because reels have big freaking hooks, right? And so you got to like break it down like that. And you, and you draw a line, like, like you're measuring the tine on a deer. You draw a line down the leg as though the spur were not there. And then take a micrometer mm-hmm. and marry, measure the spur. And stop all this multiplying everything. But why aren't there non-typicals, right? So shouldn't your beard, your triple beard bird be a non-typical? Yeah, and then the, you guys would do deduction? your thing where you deduct yeah, things like, with, with, the, with deductions, it was. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's right. Be like, net or gross? <laughs> um, all right, lastly, we're going to talk about before we get into the, 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 you know, the main thing, stone tool technology, Indian arrowheads. Um, you guys, you guys probably don't say that, do you? No, usually we say projectile points yeah. or, you know, it depends the time period too. So when you were a little kid, did you say Indian arrowheads? Oh yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. You know, we just got this book. I sent it to, so hang tight, Spencer. We had a, we had a great guest on, uh, uh, a guy named Taylor Keene. Um, he's a native American activist and we had, no, I don't want to call it a debate, but, but we kind of debated the two perspectives of the perspective of someone who sees a. Uh, Indian arrowhead laying on the ground and puts it in his pocket and wants to go put it in his desk drawer for his own enjoyment and personal, you know, yeah, aggrandizement, whatever. Uh, versus the perspective of it being like that's a thing of someone else that has value being there. Um, it could tell a story. It needs to be left in place, and so leave it put. Out of respect for the people who made it, and out of respect, you know, we, we had this whole debate. Someone, uh, Yanni recently, someone sent Yanni this book. I sent it to Taylor Keene, just as a joke, a text message about the book. Cause it was like, um, the, I, how do I identify and value Indian arrowheads? <laughs> it was like, it was like a trading, it was like a trading book. Oh yeah. About arrowheads. Like, oh, worth about, you know. Artifacts around the world are sold yeah. and all yeah. over the place. I think after guns and drugs, antiquities is the third most profitable Whoa. trade, oh. illegal trade. Is that right? Yeah. Oh. Okay. It sounds way cooler than the other two. Oh, sure. <laughs> oh, in yeah. antiquities. Yeah. Hit, uh, so, so talk about what you're going to talk about, we, we have an Instagram message uh, for someone that says, Dear Spencer, my name is Declan, and I'm a freshman in high school. I was wondering if you had any ideas for a science fair project related to Meat Eaters for Verticals. I was just looking for an idea that is out of the box and not basic, like which plant grows taller. So what do we got for him? Oh, that's a basic science idea? To Declan, yes. Hmm. What Declan are we dealing with? Declan Harrington? Declan o- uh, Murphy? Since he's a minor, I don't know that I should okay. say his last name. No, you're name. probably not. Yeah, don't don't yeah. say his last name. Just Declan. wanted to get an origin. Just Declan. So, and you're bringing this up because of what? Well, this seems like a room that could ideate some good science fair projects. Well, I thought maybe you were thinking like related to stone maybe. tools. That'd be good. Or poop mm-hmm. knives. The poop knives be great. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> I think if he you wants to- poop uh, knives thing would be really good. Mm-hmm. But that, so, that debate's that already been settled, though. Science needs to be replicated. Yeah. So. Well, yeah, just something around poop knives. There you go. As a way into this, can we, well, let's come back to it, because I, I, I got a handful of ideas. Uh-huh. Um, he could do it. Here's one. How about he does this? Where does he live? Don't know. Hmm. Let's say he lives in a squirrel area. Mm-hmm. Go out, start weighing squirrels, measuring their tails, and then measure their skull. And see if it's like inverse or not. See if it's like a good correlation. If he's like, hey, man, it turns out big ass squirrels with big long tails have big ass skulls. So that's it. You're barking up the right tree, so to speak. Uh, if he turns out that like 
huge squirrel, huge tail, little teeny skull, then we might know that that's not, that'd be a good project for him. There you go. What were you thinking? I think there's a lot of stuff around cooking for opportunities. Um, like one, one thing you hear all the time, especially with your uh, Louisiana crawfish pond friends, is that like if you cook a crawfish and it comes out with a straight tail, it's a bad crawfish. Hmm. It went in the pot dead. But I don't think that's true. That's something you could easily test and solve a mystery for a lot of folks. That's a great idea. I think there's also something with like um, eggs that if you have a chicken egg and if it sinks, I think it's yep. it's old, right? Mm-hmm. Or if it floats, it's it's fresh. I don't know the exact. Yeah, but here's the thing, man. People already have done all that stuff, but they haven't done the squirrel head thing. Okay. I bet people have solved all the mysteries that this science fair freshman class goes after anyway. Oh, so you're saying they're all going to take a cheap shot. Yeah. Probably. A lot of paper mache volcanoes. You got any ideas, Cal? You know, back in my science fair days, there was literally like a book <laughs> of science fair projects. You could pick <laughs> right. So um, it, science does need to be repeated. I would, just from bird hunting this year, I think it would be great to get some new definitive uh data on uh, penetration on different uh, makeups of shotgun shells. Like use like all ounce or two and three quarter inch, uh, this is one ounce work. loads. This is not going to work for this kid, man. Why not? Shooting into what? Oh, he can come up with anything. Phone books. Oh, I see. Right? And yeah, just look at idea. like penetration of that is a good idea. bismuth versus tungsten versus lead. Yeah. Uh, so on parents day. He's out in the parking lot. Kaboom. <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> Step on up. Take a shot. You yeah. know something that non-hunters are easily fascinated by is trail cameras. If you're ever watching a show on like Animal Planet or uh, like something on Discovery where they're looking for Bigfoot and they're using a trail camera, they don't call it a trail camera. They're like a camera remote, trap. yeah, camera trap um, that's motion activated with night vision or whatever. You could just like, this dude wanted an easy way out. He could just go throw out some trail cameras and be like, I took... A survey of the mammals on this piece of public land in central Ohio or whatever. Unless and he lives a, in a state where trail cameras are now illegal. We got to find right. out where this guy lives. Yep. Yeah, but trail cameras aren't illegal in any states for not hunting purposes. Mm, yeah. Good point. Touche. So. But if you're hunting Bigfoot. Oh, that's true. It's All right, you boys have to take it offline. <laughs> um, <laughs> by way of introduction, by way of introduction to your work. Do you mind addressing the poop knife quickly? No, definitely. Um, the reason why I went into archaeology and anthropology was because uh, when I was a teenager, I heard on NPR, the Diane Reem show, uh, the Diane ethnobot. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's she right. She has a, a, a throat. She does. Or is it cancer? <laughs> no, I don't think it is. I had a friend. Do you, you guys know what I'm talking about? I had a friend refer to her always as Dying Reem. Oh, that's Which horrible, is horrible. Listen, horrible. I like that's why Dying I bring Reem. it up. And that I respe- guy, I, he's yeah, a terrible, terrible person. person. <laughs> I was, listen, man, imagine that being that imagine being in the situation that she's that she's toughed it out like she has, to be in the situation of being that you're like, you are your voice. America recognizes your voice, they know who you are, you're a voice of authority, and then you're stricken with a health issue that impacts your voice. It's like almost like Shakespearean. 
you can imagine how cool I was as a teenager listening to Diane Reem, um, you know. Oh, yeah. Did you tell all the guys on the school bus about that? Oh, definitely. <laughs> definitely. It was, you know. Um, but Way Davis, who's an ethnobotanist and anthropologist, was on the show promoting his new book. And he what told, was the book? It was called uh, Shadows in the Sun. Okay. Um, really great book about uh, ecotourism. And uh, he told the story that uh, one of his uh, Inuit informants told him um, that allegedly his grandfather in the 1950s and his family was being moved off of their ancestral homeland in the Canadian Arctic. And uh, he didn't want to go because it was his land. So uh, his family was trying to convince him to come in the igloo and they would leave the next day for the, the new reservation or, or area to go. And he stood outside the igloo in protest and said, I'm not coming in. And day turned to night and it got pretty cold in the Arctic. And they took away all of his tools and all of his utilities to convince him, like, come inside. What are you going to do? You have got nothing. You can't survive out there. So allegedly, so the story goes, uh, this guy defecated into his own hands. And as his feces froze, he honed them into the shape of a knife. And he sharpened that knife with a spray of saliva. And uh, he called over a dog and murdered it with this knife, butchered it, turned the dog's rib cage into a sled, used the dog's hide to harness another dog, and he sped off into the night. So I heard this story as a teenager, and I was like, oh, my God, that's amazing. I want to study anthropology and learn about technologies of, of indigenous people. And well, little did I know, 20 years later, I found the Kent State Experimental Archaeology Lab and where we can make any artifact from the last three million years of human technology. And well, it was a few years ago, I was thinking, well, what's going to be our next lab project? And I remembered that story. And uh, I remember texting my co-director, Dr. Michelle Beber, and I said, hey, I've got a great idea for our next experiment. She's like, oh, really, what? <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, do you remember that story that Wade Davis told about the Inuit? And I just left it at that. No, no comment back, no comment back. Then I see the little text dots. Oh my God, is what you texted <laughs> back. So we decided to test this idea that uh, you can make a functional knife out of your own frozen feces. And uh, Do we, you guys have to use your own feces? So I went on an <laughs> Arctic diet for two weeks. Nice, oh, that's great. And uh, See, I'm, I'm way more interested. Do, man, yeah. That's yeah. what I'm saying. Yeah. Uh -huh. That's what I'm saying. And uh, and what was that? High in protein and fat? Yeah, pr protein, fat, lots of salmon, uh, lots of other fish, fatty meats. Um, I do have a kid, so occasionally there was a couple missteps. I, took, I had to finish his applesauce <laughs> once and his macaron and cheese. But we actually, in the paper, the published paper, we detailed the whole diet for the I two I saw weeks. that. Yeah. Cool. And uh, then I started to produce the, the raw materials and, you know, it's, it was amazing. And it was a process because- Did you like, find that the change in diet had a cha uh, changed the BM? Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, also, bowel, just like my that's, overall- that's bowel movement. Yeah. <laughs> well, my whole attitude too, like I just became real depressed and I think it was because, you know, we've got this awesome lab at Kent State where we can shoot stuff and create any artifact out of metal or ceramic or stone, whatever. But instead of being in my awesome lab, I'm at home pooping in a bag, um, <laughs> which I then would store in my freezer hmm. um, because we needed statistically valid sample sizes. And so I produced a lot of raw materials. You were saving them all up. Oh, saving them all up. Um, and so uh, we then got dry ice, negative 50 degree centigrade. So really cold temperatures to make sure we're replicating the Arctic. And uh, 
started making this stuff. And um, we got some uh, pork and uh, tried to, to butcher the pork with these knives. And we gave ourselves some advantages too, because I really wanted to be able to say like that shit cut it. Yeah, um, yeah that's great. But uh, so the, there was no hair on the, the pork, right? Because that could mess up your blade like the dog would have. Also, the pork was refrigerated. It wasn't warm like a freshly killed dog would be, you know, because that would melt your knife. Um, and I had a file in some cases to sharpen my my shit as much as I could. Um, Were, do you, did other people have to mess with it too? Well, uh, we actually replicated <laughs> our own experiment. Uh, Dr. Beber uh, repeated the entire experiment oh, okay. with the Western diet. Oh, uh, that's good. Yeah. Where it was funny because she didn't know she was going to repeat it. And she had just happened to have Wendy's twice that day. So in the published oh. paper, we had to detail, <laughs> you know, the fact that she had Wendy's Down twice. Down in history. <laughs> so A frosty. Yeah. You got to get that. You know, I think she's spaghetti too. But the point is, when we went to cut this stuff, um, we could not cut anything. Couldn't make it work. Just streaks, right? Just a different sort of streak, but this time on the meat. And uh, just the friction from trying to do the butchery, melted the blade edge. Got it. So this. So I, what do you think actually happened that day? Well, so there's a couple hypotheses, right? Um, what I actually think happened is, and we this has been documented time and time again when you have anthropologists and ethnographers studying indigenous people, sometimes indigenous folk just get sick of getting studied. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, you know, they sometimes will just make up stuff to entertain themselves or to... Just to have a laugh. Just to have a experience. laugh. And yeah, and, yeah. and that's been documented. Um, and so it's possible that uh, th that person told Wade Davis just a story <laughs> and sort of is ex went into the literature. Who knows? Yeah. Maybe it did happen because the conditions of reality are different than the conditions in the lab. And we've got to balance those two things. Um, so I, it, it, the evidence... Laboratory-wise, does not support the idea that you can make a knife out of your own frozen crap. And my favorite quote from that paper was, it was like a brown crayon. It, <laughs> it was like a brown crayon. Um, also, too, we, we managed to slip in there that I regularly produced the materials for several weeks. Oh, no, there's a bunch of jokes. We won an Ig Nobel Prize. For oh, you did? Study. What yeah. does that mean? Oh. So the Ig Nobels uh, are... Ig Noble. yeah. Um, yeah. He doesn't get it. No. So the Nobel You're Prize good. and then ignoble is like shame. Ah, go type yeah, into like your <laughs> go into your computer and type in ignoble. Okay. But it's uh for science that first makes you laugh and then makes you think. So it's the funniest science. And so uh in uh 2020 we won the Ig Nobel for for that study. So it's cool because uh you know they're presented at Harvard and you get to go there. And Did your university get mad at you about it? So it's funny because we did the, all the ethics and stuff before we did the study. And uh, I remember sitting down with the director of research uh, and they were like, you know, we're, we're, we've got mixed feelings about this study that you want to do. Because, you know, when you type into Google Kent State, one of the first things that comes up is the May 4th shooting. Sure. Two like, soldiers and Nixon. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> You're a good singer. Dead in Ohio. Yeah. Play that shit, Bill. And so they were like, this study might change that, but it's a shame that it's going to be Kent State poop knife. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, yeah, man, I can see like, dude, which, yeah, that's a real, that's a real question. Yeah. Which of those you want? Yeah. And well, we, we did it. So now how I found the paper, I was uh, researching for an article on Peter Fruken, who claimed 
to have been stuck in a blizzard in the Arctic, and he crawled underneath his sled to survive. And he was there for 30 hours, and the blizzard was so bad that a wall of ice formed around him. And he said in a moment of genius, he defecated, turned that shit into a chisel, and then broke his way out. That was the only way he could escape this little coffin that had formed around him. And the only information online available to help solve whether or not this could have really happened was your paper. Well, and, and so that's real interesting because in peer review and then afterward, colleagues and stuff said, well, you know, Peter Freakin allegedly, you know, made his chisel. So your, your knife paper has to be wrong. And we said, well, knives and chisels are different. And also, too, the substrates cut um, meat versus snow. Th those are different variables. So the Peter Freakin story could be true and the Inuit story could be false. They're just, this is variables in science. Now, I think something else to consider with Peter's story is that he was the only witness to it. He talked about, I think for the first time in his autobiography, The Vagrant and Viking, um, he had a personality that wanted to attract fame. He was like sort of a low-key Hollywood socialite. He was in movies. He directed movies. He would go to Hollywood parties and throw actresses over his head. Um, like, he really liked the attention. He went on the, the game show, the $64,000 question. Um, so the question, though, is, like, if you've got all these options to make up how you broke out of an ice drift, <laughs> right, why would you go with poop chisel? Like, right. You, so bizarre it might because be Because he, maybe he yeah, heard that then. story that you had heard. Yeah. Well, Peter Freakin, that happened... It's in the 30s, in the like 30s. 1935. Oh. So this story happened in the 1950s. It uh, would be, yeah. he would also, in your list there, Spencer, have mm -hmm. to be wearing garments that lacked any sort of pockets or carrying <laughs> capacity whatsoever. I mean, there's just not, from the second I get dressed out of the shower, there's not a situation that I'm in where I don't have something in my pocket that would be better than a poop chisel. Uh -huh. <laughs> Like, yeah, so based on your paper and Peter's yeah, uh, not personality, it. I don't think he did it. I'm not buying it one Well, bit. the high schooler needs a, a project. There you go. Yeah. That could be Poop it. chisel. Poop chisel. Out of a snow thing. Yeah, that's great. He just needs to oh, replicate that. Yeah. Like, you replicated the other thing. He needs to replicate that thing. Yeah. If we knew where this dude lived, it'd be real helpful. It's like Florida where it's really hot. Yeah, if he's in Florida, yeah, that'd, be not <laughs> that'd be the worst poop knife of all time. So if you want to read the article <laughs> that uh, I had reference. His paper, it's fact checker, did explore Peter Frukin save his life with a poop chisel. You can find that on TheMeteor.com. I wrote it in 2021. Excellent. Great plug. Yeah, the, the Declan name, I'm still thinking he's like uh, Irish, but he can't be in the sun too long. <laughs> Probably in northern climates. Man, between streaming services, fitness apps, and delivery services, it's never-ending. I'm talking about the, the, the subscriptions, the monthly dings on your credit card. Well, thanks to Rocket Money, I'm no longer wasting money on the ones I forgot about. Rocket Money is a personal finance app. It goes in and finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions. Meaning, you know, like, let's say there's like a show that comes out and you want to watch it and you wind up doing like this free trial and you forget about it. And then two years later, you realize you're paying those hosers 12 bucks a month for something you don't use. It finds that stuff, cancels it and helps lower your bills so you can grow your savings instead. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all the app's features. With Rocket Money, I have full control over my subscriptions and a clear view of my expenses. 
Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash meat eater. That's rocketmoney.com slash meat eater. Again, rocketmoney.com slash meat eater. Hey, I'm excited to share our newest sponsor here on the Meat Eater Podcast, which is Poncho Outdoors. The reason I'm excited is I buy their shirts anyways. I don't, I don't I, listen, man, I, I rarely go into stores to buy clothes. I like to, I just buy myself online and I love their shirts. Max, that I work with, Max Bard, who comes on the podcast one day, I don't know if he sent me a link to this place. I went on and bought some shirts. Dude, they make some good shirts. And they even have an option where if you're like a skinny dude, you can click like the skinny dude thing and get like a whole different cut of the shirt. It's great. Based in Austin, Texas, Poncho is committed to crafting the world's best outdoor shirts for men. They got it started out with a lightweight fishing shirt. Now they make all kinds of other lines. Western, denim, flannel, corduroy. Better fitting. Not not all baggy. Better performing because they got modern fabrics with some stretch and breathability. And way comfortable. Poncho is only sold on their own website. So head over to ponchooutdoors.com. Use code MEATEATER for a free hat or t-shirt with any purchase of a shirt. Poncho offers free shipping and returns, so you can try them out risk-free. The single most valuable tool I have for chasing turkeys next to my scattergun is the Onyx Hunt app. If I'm hunting turkeys, I'm using Onyx. If I'm not hunting turkeys, I'm using Onyx. I'm always using Onyx. I live by that stuff. I can't tell you the number of birds this app has put me on by allowing me to easily find new areas to hunt. It's invaluable. I use it all the time. Even properties I know super well. And I'm at my buddy Bubbly Doug's house. I'm using Onyx, and I've hunted this place a million times. With their compass mode, I can pinpoint exactly on the map where a gobble rang out from and then figure out the perfect spot to set up. Meaning, if I'm sitting there, let's say I'm at Bubbly Doug's, and I'm in the navel, and I hear, Pow! I'll like instinctively pull up Bubbly Doug's place on, on X and I'll look at the topography and I'll be like, oh, that sucker must be over in that little opening over there. Waypoints also, and the ability to share them, okay, comes in handy every spring. Whether that's revisiting old waypoints where I've been on birds before or sharing them to buddies to help put them on birds. This app will help you find more turkeys. Onyx Hunt has a special offer for you too. Use code MEATEATER to receive 20% off your membership at onxmaps.com slash hunt this turkey season. Okay, I'm trying to think. Of, there's a million ways to get into this. I'm trying to think of how best to get into it. Let's get into it like this. We just talked about the poop knife. Yeah. Explain um, why, explain the question about Clovis and go as broad as you want. Meaning, um, you can kind because of, there's a thing we've talked about extensively is like the Blitzkrieg hypothesis. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So however you want to set it up, walk us into the the, the paper you recently did about did these boys really go out and, and make stone projectile points and take down how big were mammoths? Real big, it, you know, like uh, two tons. Oh, yeah, easily. Were they chiseling little stone points and knocking mammoths down? All right. So, so why yeah. is that? A, why is that a question that sort of goes beyond just simple curiosity? So, m- megafauna, right? Thirty-five genera of megafauna went extinct at the end of the Pleistocene, so about ten thousand years ago. Um, and the the big question is whether or not humans in North America had any role in those extinctions. And that speaks to, to larger philosophical issues about, you know, our nature and, and our balance with 
you know, ecosystems and all this sort of stuff. So people that use Clovis technology were some of the very first people on the continent. And, and we know Clovis folks date to around 13,600 years ago. Now, back in the 50s and the 60s, when archaeologists were really getting into the study of Clovis, they, they noticed that, wow, just as Clovis people seem to be traveling across the continent, all these megafauna really seem to be dying. And so there must be a connection there. There's covariance. But and, not just around the continent, around the world, man. Well, uh, mega- Look at the islands that wound up having mammoths till 4,000 years ago. What happened 4,000 years ago? Dude showed up. Wrangle, well, Wrangle Island. That's true. Now, there's, there's two issues with that. Uh, one is that island extinctions are different than continental extinctions. Yeah, they happen when dudes show up. <laughs> <laughs> the other issue is that a uh, paper just recently came out that showed that mammoths were surviving um, in northern regions until very recently. Like four or five like thousand, five thousand years, ago. years ago. So we did not yeah. cause their extinction. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, and so, all right, go on. Yeah, so, it, but it's a good point. Island, we we are terrible on islands. Like, but, uh, Wrangell's not that big, too. So, like, there's all these other factors. The the uh, I'll, I'll let you go on, but you got a lot of inbreeding, uh, shrinking, malformed mammoths on that island. To where it could <laughs> be possible that the people who do show up and kill them, uh, maybe they weren't. Uh, so great. Maybe their timing was great. Yeah, I, I don't want to get into it. Well, <laughs> Steve's like, I descended from these people who killed mammoths. And I'm very proud of that. Well, there's an issue, too, as to whether or not we hunted mammoths uh-huh. versus hunted them to extinction. Okay. And so I don't think anyone doubts that on occasion people that use Clovis technology hunted mammoths. Uh, you know, there's, there's archaeological evidence that on, on some occasions that seem to have occurred. Um, the, the big question is whether we hunted them so much with the Clovis fluted point um, that we wiped them out. Yeah, because a guy like me grew up seeing a Clovis point and saying, that was made for killing mammoths. Oh, and Clovis points are awesome. Um, You're grabbing one off the table. I, right I am now. grabbing one. Yeah, you got to describe a, <laughs> yeah, for so a layman. Clovis points are 10 to 12 centimeters, um, five or six inches. Um, they're beautifully flaked. It took me years to learn how to make a, an accurate Clovis point. We can pass them around. I brought several. They're huge. Them. Yeah. Almost I, like you wanted to kill a mammoth with it. Well, you can get real <laughs> small ones too. There's some small ones over. Tiny mammoths. Over here. Little tiny ones. Um, oh, that's beautiful. Man. And uh, and they've got these channels. I want to hold I want to hold one of the big ones. Yeah, here you go. Point you another one. Let's see another good one. Um, well, this one's hafted. Let's see. Here's a good one. Okay, sweet. Go on. I just want to hold it while yeah, you talk. Yeah, no, it's cool. So they've got these channels that come from the base. And these channels are really difficult to, to master. Um, it, it took me a long time to learn how to flake these channels off the base. Because when you, you hit the point from the base, it causes all sorts of bending. And the point will break. And we know from studies of the archaeological record that when you flute these things... They break one out of four times, one out of five times. Can you explain what, fluting? So real fluting quick? are these channels um, that you see at the at the base, and so they they extend from that flat or concave base up. Into and that's the is, that, is that concave or convex? I can never get those things. Concave right. is the one where it goes into the okay, like so, a cave. Yeah, you're holding the point and running along the length of the point. They get it all done, and then they thin the base by knocking a con uh, a channel. 
knocking a concave channel channel up each side of the thing. Each side. So you risk breaking it twice. And so, that's where it's anchored on a shaft, right? Yeah. And so the, the big question is, you know, it takes years to learn how to make a Clovis point. And even after you've mastered it, you risk breaking it one out of four, one out of five times. Why would Clovis people uh, take those risks when you've got to, to feed your family and protect your, your band from predators and all this sort of stuff? These are really important weapons for them. And actually what we, we discovered was that fluting technology uh, is not for better hafting it or attaching it to a spear shaft. It's the, the world's first shock absorber. You um, think so? Well, we, we showed so. Um, there's, yeah, I've been, we, I've been following this a little bit. But. So what, uh, what we were able to find when we teamed up with a bunch of engineers and, and computer scientists was that when you flute both sides of a Clovis point, the base becomes super thin and brittle, really thin and brittle. And I started to think to myself, man, it's so thin and brittle, like it would just crunch. And then I was like, oh man, maybe that crunching uh, is actually the advantage they were going for. So when a car crashes into something, the front end crumples, protecting the people inside. So when you've got a Clovis point, and I've got one attached to a foreshaft here, is going 70 or 80 miles at prey, right? You're going to get a lot of compression stress between that animal and the eight foot spear shaft behind it. Now, oftentimes the point will snap in half, but if you've got that little shock absorber where it crumples a little bit and absorbs some of that impact stress, mm -hmm. um, it actually will crunch at the base and not break the point in half. So if you're Clovis people and you're traveling across a continent and exploring new lands that you've never been to before. Killing mammoths left and right. Well, you know, <laughs> you, know you don't want to- Faster than you eat them. Well, you don't want to spend a lot of time remaking your weapons all the time. So by integrating these little shock absorbers, they figured out a way to basically extend the life of the tool that kept them alive. But uh, speak about the hafting question. Yeah. Because that was long, it was like long held. Well, you'd, you'd read where people would say, oh, it had a spiritual, perhaps a spiritual significance, which means we don't know what it meant. Um, well, archaeologists always say that when they don't know what's going on. And then you it's had virtual. people talk about the hafting, but the hafting thing is kind of legit because imagine that, um, I'm trying to explain this to listeners, that like take your middle finger and your index finger and like put them together, right? So they're running parallel together. Um, and then you slip that point between them. And then that, and that little groove gives your fingers somewhere to rest. And then you lash that down with string. I mean, it's plausible that that was like, a, eh, it's plausible, right, that that was helpful. Because if it was a rounded surface, your fingers wouldn't have anywhere to really grab. So that's one really interesting thing about the way archaeology is done today is that we study it in basically a way that you just described in terms of evolution. And usually when evolutionary uh, features get adopted, it's because they've got multiple benefits. Mm -hmm. So shock absorption could be one benefit. Hafting could be an additional benefit. Yeah. Um, and so, and there could be other benefits to fluting that we have not yet discovered yet. So uh, yeah, there's a lot of work to do. I want to make, I want to get back to what we're on, but I want to talk, I want to talk about hafting for a second. Yeah. yeah. If you think of your class, like think of a Boy Scout badge and it has an Indian arrowhead on it. What do you call those little lobes at the bottom something like this yeah so okay. uh like your classic arrowhead shape where you have a uh, how do you describe that shape um sort of like a dovetail almost yeah um, and you have a little and there's grooves knocked out we call those notches okay yeah 
do you, does it seem as though that is helpful for hafting? It gives a place for the string to bite, right? It, it does give a string, a place for the string to bite. Um, one hypothesis that we're testing now though, is that the notches are not meant to keep the arrowhead or the projectile point on the shaft. Mm -hmm. What it actually does is it prevents the point from being pushed into the shaft upon impact, oh. which would break the shaft. And to be honest, even though it takes years to learn how to make any sort of stone point, um, the shafts would probably be a lot more valuable to ancient people because it takes so much more time and effort to get it straight, find the right wood, uh, carve it out. Whereas once you know how to flint nap a Clovis point, you can do it in 25 or 45 minutes real quick. Got it. But the shaft is a pain But the shaft ass. is a pain. So I And think, they would make them with different stuff, right? Is there some that are made out of like camel bone oh, and, and mammoth ivory? We get four shafts and shafts made out of wood and all kinds of wood and bone and mm -hmm. yeah, everything. So it depends on where you are in the world. So bam, bamboo in some cases in East Asia. Do they so, have any kind of like ancient adhesive that they would use on them? Yeah. So pine pitch is a really good one. Um, hide glue. They would make uh, glue from hide. Um, now in our lab- Is this all natural materials right here? No. In fact, it's mostly synthetic. Okay. Now, one reason why we try to uh, not use animal products when we do experiments uh, is because the, the ethics in, in terms of doing experiments with animal products- uh, can just get a little dicey. Oh, with come on. I, really? I'm, I'm, oh, yeah. But how are you supposed to do the work? So what we do, we sometimes use animal products. I'm not saying we cut them out entirely, but there are some experiments where we don't need to use animal products. So we'll use uh, like a wax twine um, or a plant-based product. If that's, not, if that's not the part you're looking at. If not the part, yeah, yeah, exactly. I'm with you. And then also too, um, you know, pine pitch can be really difficult to produce and there can be variability from one experiment to the next. And if we want consistency, we got to use a, a, like a thermoplastic that allows us to control that variable when we're focused on some other variable. Yeah. But if so, you're studying adhesives and you're then looking we at have, that, yeah, that's yeah, exactly gotcha. right. Yeah. yeah. So, that's fair. I'll give you that one. That's fair. So what all kind of weapons were these points used on? Spears, bows, atlatls? So the atlatl. Um, now, let me just preface that by saying we've never found uh, a Clovis atlatl. Um, so Are you into atlatl or atlatl? I say atlatl. See, man. Okay. What do you say? I used to say that, and then I got corrected so damn much. I started saying atlatl. Really? really? Yeah, I think atlatl. Dude, I had a dude telling me, he's like, listen, man, it's wrong. And I switched because I trusted him. Really? Yeah. Oh, man. Trusted him. I think so. And then he was like, let me tell you about this poop knife. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so, yeah. You never found a... We've never found Clovis atlatl, so we assume that they used atlatls with uh, their projectiles because these projectiles, you see they're big. Um, if you tried to put that on an arrow, um, it might mess up a lot of the ballistics, and it'd be hard to haft that onto an arrow shaft. And... You don't see evidence of bows and arrows on this continent till like four or five thousand years ago of even, any sort, right? Yeah, even later in some cases. Okay. Um, so the other issue too is we don't know that they were used with an atlatl. It could be hand like thrown spears um, or thrusting spears, handheld thrusting spears. Got it. Um, so it's just an assumption that they use the atlatl, but they may not be projectiles at all. Uh, I want to get a couple of things. I want, we're we're going to get back to this whole mystery of whether they killed man. Yeah, or yeah, not, But I want to I want to just explain to folks what I'm holding. Yeah. So, or we have, and correct me where I go wrong here, the very tip, the tip of the spear, so to speak, 
we have the stone Clovis point. And the specimen is made out of... That is actually an English chert. Okay. So it's made out of chert. Um, and it's hafted to, with, with string, it's lashed to a, I don't know, 15 inch... Yeah, that's ash. Ash four shaft. Four shaft. So it's like uh, the, the, at the thickest part, it's about the thickness of a Sharpie and comes to a point um, reminiscent of like a drumstick. Yeah. That's a good description. And then you didn't just fling this at something. There's like, like a, another star, part. Yeah. So there's a, what, what's the next part? Or so do, and do you have one here? I couldn't what? fit the seven foot dart into my okay. uh, suitcase. Um, so this sockets into a uh, handle or what, what do you call that part? Well, we call the uh, we call it a dart, and okay. so it would be like a seven foot, very thin and flexible spear. Um, and so, and, and that way, what happens is you throw the entire sort of dart and foreshaft at the animal. The foreshaft sticks, the dart falls out, and then you can retrieve your dart and put in another foreshaft. So this would just socket into that, exactly. like just held by friction. Yes. Into you know, uh, we're in South America; they still use oh yeah socketed. Shooting out of arrows, they still use socketed points that fall away. That's amazing. Yeah. And then they would tie for their bird points. They would leave a tied connection wrapped around because they want the arrow to fall away. And then it's it, the bird tries to fly away and he gets hung up in the bushes because he's dragging the shaft yeah. around on the end of a chunk of string. Yeah, that that's almost reminiscent. I read uh, an ethnographic account of they tie uh, like skin balloons when they're doing whale hunting mm -hmm. um, so that when the projectile hits, you know, the underwater creature that you're going after, you can follow it with that balloon. Um, so it's not being dragged, but it and was, it absorbs it was, a little bit. Yeah. It's like a little bit of a shock absorber yeah. when something pulls on it. So, and then that would be the if the at atlatl thing. Explain what that is. I'm holding it right now, but just explain what the hell we're talking about when we say an an atlatl. So an atlatl is basically a stick with a little nub at the end of it, and that little nub very similar when you're playing fetch with your dog and you got one of those tennis ball huckers. And, and in that's fact, exactly it. Right? Yeah, yeah. 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 So it's like a tennis ball hucker with a little turkey spur sticking out the end of it. And Huck to, it. <laughs> that's what it is. The Huck physics it. are the same, right? Um, it's a basically increases the leverage of your arm. It's a a lever. Um, and when you've got just a stick with a little nub, you put your spear sort of right, insert it into that nub. You can launch a dart, you know, 70 miles an hour, 75 miles an hour. Are you pretty good with one? No, I suck. What's the best person? Okay. The best person you've seen with one, how good are they at? Just give me like some distance and group size. So, well, there's a couple ways to use an atlatl. So you can do it for accuracy and, you know, I've seen and heard cases where people can hit a cantaloupe from, you know, 30 or 40 yards. Okay. So that's pretty good. Yeah. Um, the other thing though, that you can do with a dart and atlatl is if there's a, a large herd, 150, 200 meters away, you can just launch your dart into the herd and it will go that 200 meters. Um, you can huck one that far. Oh yeah. Really? Yeah. Have you done it? How far can you huck one? Probably hundred meters or so. But people that are and really And you might good. have just hail married it out there into a group of stuff just to see what happened. Yeah, definitely. And like so, in that Never Cry Wolf movie. There's probably different... Remember he takes his, uh, he takes a, a jackknife, ties it to the end of a stick, hucks it into a herd of caribou, walks over and there's one laying there dead. Remember that Never Cry Wolf? Great movie. <laughs> is Phenomenal there, movie. Is there different size, um, like projectiles and stuff that you'd throw out of an atlo? Because obviously one you could throw farther than an, another. Or are they all pretty similar? So... You can throw any size stone projectile 
with an atlatl. So it can be a really t teeny tiny arrowhead or a, a really large clovis point, because what happens is the the dart is so much more massive than the point that it sort of balances out. I see. Where you can't sort of go is take a really large point and put it on a very thin arrow shaft. So there mm. you need to have small arrow points um, made out of stone. Yeah. So. Um, so go back to the different styles of, like the different p possible styles of hunting with one of these things. So there's like accuracy. Mm -hmm. You can go for, you know, 30, 40 yards, try to get a lung shot or heart shot and people can do it. Um, actually, if you type in at lateral hunting onto YouTube, there's lots of videos of, of people doing it. Um, but you can what, watch. Uh, let me, let me throw one at you. Cause, yeah. cause this is kind of what I mean. Let's say this big ass mammoth standing there. Oh. No, no, no. Bear with me. Yeah. Okay. You, like they're not accustomed to people. Let's just let's just go down the 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 fantasy thing here. You're early people on a new continent. You're dealing with animals that have no idea what the hell you are. Uh, they're just like I don't know what's this little annoying thing walking up to me, and you get up five <laughs> yards away and you're like, Hwah! right? Yeah. You're not really relying on accuracy. No, it's not a hail mary. No, you're just like, can I bury this thing in there enough to to kill it? Yeah, and I'm sure you guys have messed around with that. Like, can you drive the point? Like, no, nothing to do with it being far away, nothing to do with being really good at it, but just can you take it and flap? Like, could I take it and poof, right through Phil? Oh, through Phil? Oh, yeah, definitely through <laughs> Phil. Yeah, that's no problem. Right, pin him right to his chair. Yeah. Um, but when it comes to a mammoth, uh, the answer is no. Um, <laughs> just flat out. Yeah, just hum it. Know that I'm going to pin him to his chair or know that I'm going to get it in there enough to do something to him. You wouldn't be able to do anything to him probably. Really? really? Yeah. And I'll, I can explain why. All right. I don't buy it for one second. <laughs> I haven't even heard the explanation. Yeah. Even me? <laughs> <laughs> all right. Tell me why. All right. So uh, we did ballistics experiments in our lab at Kent State where uh, instead of hucking at a mammoth because we couldn't. Because <laughs> the ethics issue. Yeah, that's, well, yeah. It's, it's hard to find mammoths, right? <laughs> you got to grow them. Yeah. Which is a pain in the ass enough. And They're trying, though. They're trying, yeah, though. No, I know. Like, it'll be helpful to you guys. Yeah. You should amazing. order the first couple. Well, I've got – well, <laughs> I do have a proposal for you at, when we're, we're done talking about yeah. mammoths. Um, but uh, – so what we've been doing in our ballistics lab is uh, we end up shooting into blocks of clay. And we've done lots of engineering experiments looking at the how clay compares to, to meat and flesh. Mm -hmm. And it's not just us. There's been knife makers and all sorts of other people who have looked to see how does clay compare. Yeah, what's that other shit they use? The uh, ballistic gel? Ballistic gel. Oh, yeah. That's right. um, we've also done experiments with yeah. that. It's terrible. Ballistic gel is... What about, oh, really? You don't, oh, you don't oh, like it? Oh, what, no. what about what they always do on like TV shows, like when they're testing out swords and shit, like using <laughs> using pigs? Um, oh, like a pig carcass? Yeah, 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 yeah. So, I mean, you can use carcasses. Uh, the issue, though, then is how does that sort of compare Relate to the animal? To it, yeah. 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 Um, so we were shooting into blocks of clay. Mm -hmm. Now, these blocks of clay, while they compare to, to meat, when they are different than meat, they are less resistant. So less resistant. They also don't... I don't understand what that means. So that means if you were to fire into meat, into clay... The projectile going into clay usually would be similar to meat in terms of penetration depth, mm -hmm. but on occasion it would be less. So, or no, no, it would be more. I'm sorry. On occasion it'll penetrate clay better than- It'll penetrate clay better than meat. Okay. All right. So we're firing into a less resistant substrate. 
Like that, you're giving it the benefit of the we're doubt. We're giving it the benefit of the doubt. And also our clay, even though it compares to meat, doesn't have hair and it doesn't have hide. And so when you look at mammoths, mammoths can have 10 to 12 centimeters of hair that would slow down your projectile. And their hides can be, you know, uh, two or three centimeters thick. Um, yeah. So that's on top of any meat they'd, you'd have to get through, right? And we're firing with our spot hog hooter shooter from a meter away into these blocks of clay. So kind of like what you described, you're just going up and hawking it into the, the animal. There's no wind, there's no rain um, that could sort of cause the projectile to skew and hit it at an angle, which would reduce penetration more. So we're given these Clovis points that we're firing into the clay, the best possible chance to penetrate as deep as they can. On average, Clovis points penetrate the clay blocks 18 centimeters. So that much. That is, that is not deep at all. And when we compare... <laughs> What 18 centimeters is, yeah. not only to mammoths, but to modern elephants, you are not reaching lungs, you are not reaching the heart, you're not reaching the, the liver. And this also assumes that you're making it between that cage of ribs, which yeah. for mammoths is just like a fortress. Um, so, Are you familiar uh, with the claim that at the Blackwater Draw site, they found a mammoth skull with a Clovis point in its eye socket? I am not aware of that well, claim. People think it's like was someone put it there because I thought it'd be funny. Oh, but some people think it's legit. Is it funny? <laughs> well, not funny. I mean that, that 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 there was like, okay, let me put it a different way. Some people think that I guess there's some people that were made that claim. Yeah, and other people pointed out that there's probably some human, some modern human manipulation of the stuff, where some huckster, right. There are hucksters in our Yeah, it was like, yeah. come to my special, see my, you know what I mean? And he like, wouldn't it, be cool, wouldn't it be cool if, you know, I stuck it in there and showed tourists. Right? Yeah. Or it was like legitimately in there. I, and I think, I think it was, it was described as being like evidence of, and then later was widely discredited as being, no one knows how that thing got in that head, but there's no, yeah, like no one was ever able to analyze it. It might just be like a guy was... Screwing around. I, I'm not familiar with that claim. Okay. But I Which makes be, me think it's probably not true. <laughs> yeah, it's probably not true. Oh, that's all right. Um, but uh, so, you know, when it comes to the fact that we also know that Clovis points from uh, analysis called microware, which is where you can take a scanning electron microscope and we look at the polishes and striations that are left on the artifacts themselves mm -hmm. to see how they were used. We know Clovis points were used as knives. So they weren't just projectile weapons. They were multi-use tools for processing animals as well. So when we find Clovis points in association with mammoth skeletons, and that's very rare, it's only been done, you know, 14 times uh, in the history of archaeology. Can you walk me through a couple of the notable ones? Yeah, so... Like, like, what, like what was the relationship, right? Yeah, so we'll find um, there's eight Clovis points found in the Naco mammoth um, down in the southwest. Um, there's only... Three Clovis points kind of around the area of the Colby Mammoth in Wyoming. Mm -hmm. um, let's see some of the other ones. Uh, and these are not like the Folsom point laying in the ribs. Like These are like just in association in with. In association with. But not like wedged into something. No, in and some we've never way. found a Clovis point tip in the bone of a mammoth. Hmm. Whereas we found Folsom uh, points embedded in bison bone before and, okay. and all other types of stone. So no... Just to, just to make sure everybody's clear. Yeah. 
no one has ever recovered a mammoth bone with a that coat. had like healed around or had like when it was fresh bone been impaled by, struck by, embedded in. That is correct. Never. Never. So these Clovis points that we find in association with mammoths uh, could very plausibly be just people scavenging already dead ones. Have you found humans with Clovis points in the bones? No, because um, we only have uh, one Clovis burial that's ever been found. And um, it's right near here. Yeah, Anzic. Anzic 1. Anzic 1, that's right. I mean, like 30... I forgot 30, I was in Montana. Yeah. <laughs> you could you could be at the Anzic 1 site, and uh, it's a great name for a boy. Mm. I think it sounds like a Steven Spielberg movie, Anzic 1. But he was a little boy buried uh, over by Wilsall with a bunch of Clovis points. Yeah. Hmm. You just picture how cute he looked all wrapped up in those mammoth hides uh, that his daddy killed. <laughs> can, can we talk about uh, the the Blitzkrieg hypothesis real quick? Yeah, definitely. Right, and like, so where that name comes from, right? It's like uh, attacking very, very fast. Mm-hmm. Uh, overwhelming. Uh, larger odds by moving really fast, faster well, than your opponents are going to roll the whole place up in a thousand years. Yeah. Um, how did people get to a new continent, Stephen? Did they get there really, really fast? Did they get to new places really fast? In the book Sapiens, he talks about if. I also want to say uh, no, no, spot no, no. hog. Listen, I, I'm going to shift he, he, over here real quick. Well, no. Okay, go ahead. And I'm going to give gonna you jump an back. example from Sapiens. Uh, what, what thing he says in Sapiens. The the Oregon company spot hog makes, you know, like uh, fancy, tough archery sites is their, is their big deal. But they came out with that hooter shooter forever ago. And it's, it's a highly technical piece of equipment designed around um, doing what every archery hunter probably for thousands of years has always wanted to do, which is know that the bow is screwing up and it's not you. Yeah. Right? Um, and uh, I've known those folks at Spot Hog for a really long time. Everybody's super nice, great people. Uh, but had they led with the fact they had a hooter shooter at Kent State and a projectile lab? We have two. I would, it would have been, yeah. <laughs> I w- I'd be lead with that. Are you yeah. ready for this, The hunting stuff is cool, but... That's way cool. <laughs> I, I want to first heartily uh, recommend the book Sapiens. It's got some sloppy mistakes in it. Like what? Um, they misspelled sapien. Wow, seems like a big one. <laughs> no, no. Just like he'll like make some examples. Like for instance, if a if a blank animal were to like do this to a blank animal, and it'd be like animals that don't coexist on the same continent. Just like kind of li- like mm. little lazy hmm. comparisons. That they're annoying if you catch them. But, I mean, it's, it, you know, it's a, it's a highly regarded book. He gets into, like, the human diaspora out of Africa 70,000 years ago. And, and for a long time he talks about, which is kind of cool, like, if you go to an area and you'd be like, oh, there's some mule deer. Oh, and there's some white-tailed deer. That um, at various times around the world you had different humans coexisting. It'd be like, oh, there's one kind of them. Oh, there's another kind of them. They seem really similar, but they're kind of a little bit different, right? Um, but he focuses in on Homo sapiens. And he says, if a forager band split once every 40 years, uh, prior to this, he gets into like what probably 
hunter-gatherer bands. How big was a hunter-gatherer band? Like just based on various pieces of evidence is like, like roughly how many people lived in these hunter-gatherer bands that roamed around? And then how did they, like what were their group interactions and group dynamics? And it's all a huge question mark, but he just kind of offers some like perspectives on how to understand this. Um, there's kind of this funny thing that happens too. Uh, and he looks at all these examples from, from um, human societies. A hundred people becomes a very different, if you imagine a group of people as like an organism, say, uh, the organism changes dramatically at a hundred people. And he gets into a lot of stuff even at like organizations, professional organizations, um, military units, all these kinds of examples. Like, like sub 100 people, every individual is able to know, like at, at sub 100 people, every individual is able to know pretty much the history of everyone else. You can know their name. You'll be able to put together their family tree. You like remember grievances and gripes. You get over a hundred people and you start to enter into sort of like a different territory. And it seems that a lot of these early groups, he like he has this spirited argument that probably around a hundred people or less, probably not more, would survive as these roaming bands of hunter gatherers that just stayed on the move all the time. Which leads to this quote, which I highlighted: "If a forager band split once every forty years." And its splinter group migrated to a new territory 60 miles to the east. The distance from East Africa to China would have been covered in about 10,000 years. So that's slow, but it's like, it depends on your perspective. Sure. It's, it's like, it's slow, but fast. <laughs> I mean, East Africa to China, just as like people filling up the landscape Without a thought, without being propelled by the idea that you're supposed to fill up the landscape. Uh, I mean, obviously you're familiar with this, which is why I asked the question, right? It's like, in order for there to be new, there there brings to mind like this, this picture of like, uh, I fell out of a balloon and landed in this landscape where nothing had seen me before oh. or my kind before. Yeah, I'm with you. Whereas that 60 miles... Um, certainly around here, you know, we have a bunch of snow on the ground right here. You move 60 miles in three different directions. You're going to be, it, there's some stuff that looks green around here already. Mm -hmm. Uh, and is snow free, right? You, you can really change your landscape and, and what's around and abundant there. Yep. But we know that all these animals have these big overlapping territories they have migration routes. They they do a lot of moving mm. too. So this idea of there being like a new encounter, like constantly unannounced, is sort of a constantly unannounced presence. Surprise! We're yeah. humans, <laughs> right? Is is very hard yeah. for me. Like the knowledge of humans may well have just traveled sort of at the outer edge of humans. Right. Yeah. Right. No, and, and I think like the hunted animals are like, oh man, those slow bipedal <laughs> things, or is they. We move a little bit. A few days later, they show yeah. up. No, move that's a, a, that's a great days, point, right? man, that it wasn't like some dude is like, I'm going to sneak over a thousand miles past where anybody's ever been. For the and, honey And hole. get past <laughs> any awareness of who I am. Yeah. It's just, it's hard. Yeah. It's but point. you read it and you're it's like, yeah, you that makes sense. That. And then you're like, wait a minute. How, <laughs> Do you yeah. think you could publish that in a paper? Well, I think. It's called the Callahan uh, Principle. Yeah, well, it's. I think what you're getting at, right, with Blitzkrieg is it assumes animals are also real dumb <laughs> and that animals don't learn. And, you know, you might get away with walking up to a species that's never seen you before once. But 
his buddies are watching and they're going to see what you did um, mm -hmm. and they're going to learn. And so this idea that just because we were new, we could just walk up and sort of club animals on the head and take them out Blitzkrieg style doesn't make any sense at or, all. Or even the atlatl, when you, you compare it to like close range hunting tactics that we have now, right? Um, especially to huck something 200 meters, that's a big body movement, right? I imagine there's a couple of big steps in there. You're oh, yeah. really arcing your arm. You're yeah. doing a run, like, you're, like Happy Gilmore style. Yeah, like, Happy yeah. Gilmore <laughs> style, right? Versus like, you're not um, crouched down, semi-sneak, drawing your bow back, locking it in. You know, there's just like some some big movements. Yeah. It's, a, it's a more, uh, probably less... Uh, a little more brutal yeah, versus less uh, finesse. Yeah. Uh, you know, another thing I read that, uh, like another anti-Blitzkrieg hypothesis thing I've read is that um, there's no remains of, I don't think there's even a butcher site of like a uh, giant ground sloth. Every time you're reading about the Pleistocene extinctions, they always love to talk about the giant ground sloth because what a crazy ass animal. Yeah. Right. How tall are they? Like, I don't know, 14 feet tall or, you know. People love to bring up like mammoths and right. It's like when a, when a writer, when some journalist is going to do a list of animals and they know they're going to start with mammoth. The second one's probably the giant ground sloth. Nine feet long, 550 pounds. Yeah. They're Saber like, you know, tire. like uh mammoth and uh, uh, giant ground sloths. Every journalist does it. I was reading that there's no butcher site. Not only no, like not only no, bone stone tools stuck in his bone oh, yeah. not even a butcher site from a giant ground sloth so the only animals that we've got clovis artifacts in association with are mammoths macedon one camel one uh, camel one camel one horse and i believe that's it but we have human bones associated with with more animals but it could be like overlaps for like burial sites right like because i know that we have like some cave bears and some human skulls in close proximity uh not in north america south america uh i've never heard of that i think it was two years ago there was something okay. that came out that was pretty neat yeah. underwater cave oh like oh so in mexico uh the cenote yeah, there yeah. is a, a human skull yes and so maybe there was yeah, a, I think it was a woman yeah. that had been hit over the head right yeah yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, when you, that was, yeah, I believe that was in Mexico, but it was a very confused stratigraphy. Like that thing had been collecting shit for a long time. Right. Yeah. But imagine swimming down there and there's a lady's skull there. Oh man. But that, that's an insane, I mean, we're basing a lot off of very few sites that we know for sure humans actually carved on just a handful of critters. Right? If we were regularly hunting these mega mammals, you know, hundred, hundreds of millions of these specimens, right? We'd be finding Clovis points in association with these things all over the place, but there are only- But you're not finding Clovis. Like, okay, look at this. If you're going by that piece of evidence, then we'd have to say there weren't any Clovis hunters because we've only found one. Well- You, the... get, you have the Anzic one boy. So if you're going to go by what you found, then we'd have to say like, there weren't any people then because we haven't found them. Well, but we've got their artifacts. Yeah, but and the, we've got but like art, 20 but stone lasts a aliens. long time. Stone lasts a long time. So do mega bones don't. No, mega mammal bones do. 
I see what you're saying, but you see what I'm saying? <laughs> but An- Anzig one, Anzig one, you could easily make the the jump and just say, oh, these are ceremonial points that weren't actually used well, for anything. The right? other issue too with Clovis burials is it is a mystery as to why we only have one. Like we don't like where are these Clovis bones? Like, like maybe they buried them on the they didn't bury them, but they did like the plains tribes and put them on scaffolding. That's possible. Yeah. So there's something behavioral with Clovis that we just don't know what's going on. Why? Because we have hundreds of Neanderthal skeletons from 300,000 to 50,000 years ago. Clovis is only 13,000 years ago, and we only have one, and it's an infant. So what Clovis people are doing with their burials or with their you know deceased relatives, we have no idea. That's interesting, man. Like, they weren't interring them in caves. No, and what's really strange about Clovis, too, is that they do not seem to utilize rock shelters or caves at all. Every other hunter-gatherer group around the world, past and present, going back two million years to, you know, modern hunter-gatherers, use caves and rock shelters. There are no Clovis rock shelter sites or cave hmm. sites. What's the Why? speculation? I, like hide shelters? Big or spiders. Or in those caves. I don't know. <laughs> maybe it could be some sort of taboo, some cultural thing. Again, rich, maybe ritual. Yeah, because no like the, 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 the people, uh, the Europeans that used a similar tech tool technology and associated with a similar suite of animals, they even call them like cavemen. Oh, yeah. I'm always correcting my kids because they want to call, like, they know about me being real interested in Ice Age hunters, and they're always calling them cavemen. And I'm like, on the contrary, anthropologists think that they weren't real big into caves. They didn't hang out in caves. No, they did. In Europe and in Africa. No, I'm saying here they oh, didn't. Oh, here they didn't. No, that's yeah, what I'm that's, telling Yeah, yeah, here. exactly. Well, and I, I've only just read that, that they didn't like going, not that they didn't like, we don't know what they thought of them, but yeah. that you don't find their bones and tools and stuff in rock, rock ledge shelters. Not Pleistocene. Now, once we get into the Holocene after 10,000 years ago, we see people in North America using caves and rock shelters all the time. So it's just for whatever reason, that blip of Clovis for about five to 600 to 700 years caves were just sort of off the the real estate market. Don't know why. Uh, you said that someone could make one of the, well, let me ask another question first. So you think of what I'm at, what I should be holding right now is a knife. Yes. That's just it. No, I think it's a souped up knife. So they could be used for uh, hunting weaponry and, and projectile technology as well. But for smaller things like deer or elk, um, they just don't, they wouldn't penetrate deep enough to do anything to mammoths. So I think they could be used as, as hunting weapons. And look, it's possible that Clovis folks did occasionally take down a mammoth. I'm not saying they never hunted mammoths ever. But the the question is, did they hunt these things to extinction? And is the Clovis point some sort of Stone Age bazooka that allowed them to do that with ease? And and the answer is is no. The Clovis point just isn't this... AK-47, where you could just mow down mammoths. and But that's the impression that archaeologists have sure. published for, for decades. If they couldn't kill them with Clovis points, do they have any other creative solutions to kill a mammoth? Well, so this is it. This is where the, the, the faults of the archaeological record really come into play. Like, maybe they use some sort of poison that has not preserved on, on Clovis points, you know, today. So maybe they use some sort of poison to take down mammoths. Um, but derived from what? I don't know. And Anthrax. That, <laughs> well, and the, the issue too with poison is because Clovis people were relatively new to the landscape, they would have needed to learn which plants to, to utilize to make those poisons and, and what quantities. So I, I find the idea that they use poison um, not very 
convincing, but that's that's possible, and that's something we can't falsify at this point. What what about just like driving them off cliffs and then going to the bottom of that cliff and then dispatching them with like the Clovis points? So we do have bison jumps uh, in later yeah. time periods um, where people would drive bison off of cliffs and then you know they they butcher the top layer and then there's like two or three bison deep where they just couldn't get to them because yeah, they killed somebody. Yeah. yeah. Um, we've never found a mammoth jump. Um, yeah. And I feel like we'd find that if that existed at this point. Um, so. God, there's all those great dioramas. Aren't there dioramas yeah. of people with like sticks pushing bison Yeah, back and when we were kids, we had a, back to the cliff. a book we used to always, there's a great picture in one of our books, and they had gotten one in a pit trap. And we're hurling giant rocks down on it. Well, and they all had yeah. fur skirts. Yeah. <laughs> they're all wearing fur skirts. So that that's a possibility, right? Yeah. You drive a mammoth into an arroyo, and and it gets stuck, like, or maybe it's already sick or dying. So Clovis people could you could just whittle away at yeah. it, or whatever you had. But like this idea that Clovis folks, that is what they did, and that's who they were. They were mammoth hunters. Just isn't supported. Um, so that would just be like saying, you know. Well, actually, I can't come up with an analogy, so you can cut this part. Oh no! Let me let me tell you about. Have you ever, have you ever heard of the book The Oregon Trail? I played the DOS game in the 1980s. Okay. So there's a historian. There's a guy that wrote at the time the definitive history of the French and Indian War, and his name was Francis Parkman. Okay. And he had a lung problem. I can't remember what it was. And his doctor said you needed. You know, they used to send everybody. What the hell did you have when they send you out Consumption. west? Consumption. Right? Wasn't that it? TV? Consumption, yeah. they TV called it. Consumption was TV, right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah they're like, you got to go out to the dry climates, you know, to survive. It was like a big thing. Uh, Doc Holiday. A woman would cop blood into a handkerchief. Yeah, and the doctor would be like, you got to get out of town. <laughs> exactly, right? <laughs> exactly. Uh, so this fella, Francis Parkman, he went out in 1846 and wound up traveling with the Aguala Sioux and likely was in Crazy Horse's camp when Crazy Horse would have been about 13 years old. They go into the Black Hills to collect. He goes with the Aglala Sioux into the Black Hills to collect teepee poles and describes there how one day they get on a ledge up above a, a herd of bighorns and start rolling, trundling rocks down through the herd and kill some. That's amazing. And he ta- he explains it very explicitly. Yeah, and it's like, um, that doesn't get that's preserved because he saw it. And this is the thing we've talked about when we talk about these things like archaeological yeah, sites. Yeah. And were and- they like were they ten years later? Do you remember that weird ass time when we got on that hill and freakishly there was a hundred bighorns <laughs> and freakishly there's like these big huge rocks and they were like holy shit it and works. Bob's like roll one down <laughs> and how weird that was. Right, right. Despite having all these other <laughs> technologies, right? Instead of using the guns that we had, yeah. Instead of using the spears, instead of using the the bows, yeah. Well, or was it like you know what we like to do? Come May, we get on a big cliff every year and trundle bighorns to death with big rocks, right? Because there's just, there's like a certain amount of just like freakish shit happens. Yeah, definitely. You know, and so the fact that like. You come across a mammoth stuck in the mud, and some guy manages to, you know, take an hour or so of his time and <laughs> jab, like, jab yeah, some yeah. holes into it with the, <laughs> over and over. The yeah, same and like, hole just getting deeper yeah, and like deeper. Yeah, like jab its eye out till it dies with a Clovis point. It's yeah, like, I don't know. Sure. 
Yeah. No, Clovis people could have <laughs> occasionally taken one out. Mm -hmm. um, but you bring up like these historic accounts and we can get into the ethnographic record of elephant hunting. Mm. And that's where we can start to look at, well, okay, let's look at folks who have metal spears, right? Got it. There are documented cases of the Mabuti in Africa of spear hunting elephants or trying to spear hunt elephants. Really? And their sp metal spears bend and bounce off. Bisa hunters with muzzle loaders only have a 20% success rate of, of taking out mammoths. When they attack it. When, yeah. And elephants. Elephants, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so like this idea that with modern metals and, and even firearms, it's hard to, to take out an elephant, which is smaller than a mammoth. The idea that- And you, you don't have that hair- which and is you an don't extra have the hair. Yeah, exactly. And hair can really slow down projectiles. Yeah, um, dirty. Oh yeah, sand, mud-filled hair. Yeah, you ever tried to? No. Yeah, skin a critter <laughs> with a knife, oh, right? You're I like, oh. have ever tried to jab a mammoth <laughs> under those conditions. <laughs> so it's uh, it would have been a challenge, and so this idea that they just did it all the time, I just isn't supported. You want to know where I caught you in a contradiction? Yeah, go it ahead. could correct your career. Uh, you know what? It's I made <laughs> knives out of my own frozen poop, so okay. I don't know if I'd call it a career. Earlier, you were, we were talking about fluting. Yeah, and you pointed out that it could act as a shock absorber. Yeah, but but it was a knife. No, no, it was a multifunctional tool oh, okay. that could also be used he to just take saved out his, deer. He just saved yeah. his career. Oh, yeah. It yeah. could be you know used for deer or moose or or elk or or whatever. So got you. Yeah. Um. A colleague tried to do that to me too. He tried to ruin your yeah, career yeah. with catching and something Same like thing. That. No, the exact same thing. Oh, the thing. exact yeah, same yeah. one. Oh. Yeah, but now that I think about it, you already said like it probably was. And they might have used it for fighting each other. Or self-defense. Um, this is the other thing about Clovis points. They are so big um, that I am starting to suspect that they were probably used primarily on handheld spears. Because um, think about it, right? You are new to this continent. There's all sorts of critters that want to eat you. Short-faced bear, saber-toothed tigers. You're, and your population densities are really low because you're peopling this new continent. You want to do everything you can to survive when you're out in the wild. You need some form of self-defense. Um, and so more and more, I'm starting to think to my mind that maybe Clovis points would have served that purpose as well. And it had it mounted on a stick and it was just like a do-all. Yeah. Again, I want to say new to this continent by like, what's your context, right? <laughs> Are you fifth generation new to this continent? Right? Like what, what's yeah. the deal? Like, well, so this gets into the whole issue of when North America's was peopled, right? Okay. So there are pre-Clovis peoples in North America. Now, uh, they're, they seem to be limited to the West coast, the Pacific Northwest and, and the Southwest. There are areas of North America where it looks like people who use Clovis technology were first. So that would be the Great Lakes, New England, probably the southeast parts. Um, so Clovis was first in some regions, but they had predecessors in, in other regions. Because the, the fluted point was invented here. We don't find the Clovis fluted point anywhere else in Asia or anything like that. So if it was invented in North America, there had to have been pre-Clovis people here to invent it. Yeah, I've heard people in trying to describe the Clovis culture as sort of like it was the first widespread American-born yeah, culture. That's a good description. How long did the Clovis culture last? Only about anywhere from 500 to probably 800 years. Oh, wow. Yeah, it did not last long. Now, the reason why... Um, well, yeah, but how, I mean, like, it, it how long is... Into... Like, think about how long has America been here. Well, that's true, but when you... I mean, they're like... 
five Americas. That's true. But not, I mean, America, the country. Yeah. You're like, oh, that's not very long. And you're like, well, that is pretty long. Well, but I was way off on my math. Stone technology. (laughs) Be good. I'm saying (laughs) it's a long time. Yeah. Yeah. But Clovis points compared to something like this, which is called. What the hell is that? So this is the Achillean hand axe made by Homo erectus. So it is a large teardrop shaped object that is much larger than my face. I don't know what else to say. That's Um, gorgeous, man. But this lasted for 1.5 million years, this particular object. Really? So You'll like, find them in the human record for that long. W- yeah, really long time. It's, so It's an idea that stuck. Yeah. So you, like, <laughs> the idea of Clovis points lasting for 800 years is, is not long at all. Um, 1.5 million years, this thing. Homo erectus was just using this over and over again to chop up tubers and disarticulate skeletons. So... See, when you came in, uh, this is a good transition into like how stuff was produced. Yeah. Um, I Oh, real quick too, just as we pass this around, obsidian does get sharp to the molecule. So just when you're passing it around, don't like touch the edge. Yeah. Walk me through based on what we found, what we, we found, in, 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 like let's say on this continent. Yeah. A, you're a hunter-gatherer. And you use stone tools. So you use stone spear points, stone arrow points, stone knives, right? All your hard shit's made out of stone. Um, leave out trade networks and just walk me through sort of like the process of one minute you have nothing and then you have these like finely wrought pieces. Yeah. So. All right. So this is a. I'm holding a, a raw piece of chert that I just almost destroyed your microphone with. Um, <laughs> now, this is called Georgetown chert from Texas. And Man, it, I would see that and think you're holding a hunk of bone. Yeah, no. Isn't that weird, like the outside yeah. of it? This is rock. And it's got this chalky substance yeah, on the yeah, outside, yeah. which is a cortex. Almost now, like a limestone. So that's thing. like, you'd find that laying on the ground. You'd find that laying on the ground. You can quarry it as well, dig it out at like a chert outcrop. Now, something like that, uh, I would start chipping with the uh, hammer stones and stuff, which I brought. I can do some chipping for you guys in no, a little no, bit. No, 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 no. Walk me through it, man. But Do you uh, want to bust like, that one up or you like that one too no, much? No, no. I brought that to break for you Sweet. guys. Dude, that's a beauty piece. Oh, no. I mean. Which is like you try and <laughs> break it and it's like called a conchoidal fracture. Yeah, right? conchoidal or... fracture. And so what it means is chert, basalt, obsidian, these are all rocks that break like glass. Okay. Um. And uh, conchoidal means shell-like. The fracture oh, looks like a shell. Oh, that Yeah. I've heard that word, but I never put together what it means. Yeah, it yeah. means It looks like a little scallop shell. Exactly. That's yeah. exactly or, right. When you flake it, it leaves like a little scallop shell shape. That's yeah. exactly right. And because that shape is predictable, and if you understand the angles and, and where to hit it, uh, the fracture becomes really predictable, and you can basically make whatever you want. Mm. Um, so a piece like that, you would sort of thin down into a, a larger nap. So this is the same stone. Is that called a biface? Or is this that a, is, this or... is called a biface because I've, I've take flakes off of both sides. Um, and it's got a nice sharp edge. So I could use this as a, a processing tool. If yeah, I so to. now well, the, the hunk of, uh, what's that hunk, What's that again? That's Georgetown shirt. So we got a huge ass hunk of Georgetown shirt. I don't know, what's it weigh, six pounds? Yeah. Five. I mean, basically it looks like a big rock. Um, yeah. With a, what's down the outside? Cortex, white cortex. Like a dough colored cortex on the outside but the inside is like classic smooth kind of flint looking yep. flinty looking rock and this like i said you pick this up off the ground like 
right where God laid it. Like there it is. Yep, you picked it that's up. That's exactly right. Okay. And then someone's not going to like walk away with 50 pounds of this shit in his bag. They might. Oh, you think so? Yeah. Yeah. They would, you would see these dis. You'd see these move from source. We see people transport rock all sorts of distances. Yeah. Like in this form. Yeah. Oh, yeah. In raw form. Also in processed form. Because I was picturing them getting it like down to what I'm holding in my other hand, which is this. Uh, how, how thick is that? It's like thick as a slice of bread. Yeah. All cleaned up on all sides. It's almost kind of like in a workable knife shape right now. That's right. And then of this, you could further... And what's the advantage of that biface that you're holding is that it's not sort of the the knife itself or the biface itself. It's all the fact that all the flakes that come off are really useful and razor sharp. Um, so this this biface is like a little container of stone flakes. From every time I take one off, I'm like removing a flake from this container to make all sorts of other tools or arrowheads or, or scrapers or whatever. What's the furthest you've ever seen like like origin tool stone travel from like where you expected to find it to where like you recovered like an artifact. Yeah. So there's a, a site in Northeastern Ohio called Paleo Crossing that uh, I've been working on since I was a teenager. Um, and uh, the, the rock was transported by Clovis people over 600 kilometers. Um, and so they picked up what's called Wyandotte shirt from Southern Indiana and Western hmm. Kentucky. And probably cause they didn't know if there was going to be resupply rock in northern Ohio where they were going to because they were sort of moving into that region for the first time, they geared up and they prepared. And they took a ton of this Wyandotte chert and transported it northward to northeastern Ohio. Again. Like like how much is a ton? I mean, like I know how much a ton yeah, is. Yeah, but... so uh, we're talking about 40 Clovis points, uh, something like 800 uh, scrapers. Um, you got so... a site that put off 40 Clovis points? Oh, yeah. Oh yeah, no. If you want to see them too, you guys are all welcome to really? come to the lab and and oh yeah. Over so, how big of an area? Ah, uh, probably. I'm just trying to think in terms of fifty square meters. No shit, really. Yeah, it's pretty sweet. Was also, it was it a good decision for them to move all that shirt, or did they have like some good source material to where they took it? So Wyandotte shirt is awesome. Um, <laughs> So they were, they knew what they were doing when they picked up a bunch of it and sort of geared like, up. It's like good rock. Oh, it's good rock. Yeah. yeah it's really good. <laughs> <laughs> I'm real dumb. Uh, and so, uh, but, uh, but again, there is rock in Ohio, but since they had never been there before, they, they didn't know. So they, they prepared and they took a bunch up with them. Yeah. It's like you go somewhere for vacation, you bring a bunch of sunscreen, then you realize there's a bunch of sunscreen in the Airbnb. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Yeah. Um, we were in Nebraska on a deer hunt, and on this this place where we went, there was barely any rock. And most, it was just all yeah, sand. Yeah, in, in the sand hills. And if you found a rock, it was most likely brought there. Yeah. Yeah, the rancher we were talking to was saying that. He goes, well, in this area... Just the fact that it is rock is probably worth looking at because he goes, there's nothing, there's oh, yeah. no rock here, man. If no. it's rock here, somebody came in, someone carried it. No, definitely. And and I think, God, we used flint and basalt and conchoidally fractured rocks for 3 million years. I mean, this stuff is the most valuable stuff I think our species ever use. I mean, it got us to where we are today. Mm -hmm. 
I mean, and then it's the origin of the firearms industry in a lot of ways, gun flints, right? Yep, so, yep. Flint, and then there are hunter-gatherer groups today that still use conchoidally fractured rock for various tools and stuff. Hey, I'm excited to share our newest sponsor here on the Meat Eater Podcast, which is Poncho Outdoors. The reason I'm excited is I buy their shirts anyways. I don't, I don't I, listen, man, I, I rarely go into stores to buy clothes. I like to, I just buy myself online and I love their shirts. Max that I work with, Max Bard, who comes on the podcast one day. I don't know if he sent me a link to this place. I went on and bought some shirts. Dude, they make some good shirts and they even have an option where if you're like a skinny dude, you can click like the skinny dude thing and get like a whole different cut of the shirt. It's great. Based in Austin, Texas, Poncho is committed to crafting the world's best outdoor shirts for men. They got it started out with a lightweight fishing shirt. Now they make all kinds of other lines. Western, denim, flannel, corduroy. Better fitting. Not, not all baggy. Better performing because they got modern fabrics with some stretch and breathability. And way comfortable. Poncho is only sold on their own website. So head over to ponchooutdoors.com. Use code MEATEATER for a free hat or t-shirt with any purchase of a shirt. Poncho offers free shipping and returns, so you can try them out risk-free. Applying for tags each year in the West can be daunting. Yeah, I apply for everything everywhere. It's daunting. You have to go to a variety of sources to formulate your best guess as to where to apply. Well, this is a thing of the past now. Onyx just launched hunt research tools to simplify the process for all hunters. This tool helps organize the data that matters, makes comparing hunt options easy, and helps hunters develop a plan based on real metrics rather than gut feelings. Onyx Hunt also offers all elite members a free digital membership to Hunt and Fool, who I use, for boots on the ground insight and knowledge, and a membership to Hunt Reminder, so you never miss another deadline. Stop stressing over application season and apply with confidence in 2024. Check out OnX Hunt Research Tools, free for all OnX Hunt Elite members. Not an elite member? Well, let's fix that. Use code MEATEATER to receive 20% off your membership at onxmaps.com hunt. This is an app I use literally every day. I use it for every aspect of hunting, scouting, trapping, you name it. Pay attention here because this is a hell of a good service. It's called the Wellness Company. Picture this, okay? You wake up, you got a scratchy throat, you're all congested, you got a runny nose, you got a cough, whatever. And you weigh your options like you tough it out, get sick, take time off work, try to get a doctor's appointment sometime in the next few months, wait two hours at urgent care and sit in a room full of six sick folks. Or you... Open your medical emergency kit. You match your symptoms to the doctor-recommended prescription, and you start on the right meds right away. These medical emergency kits, not a first aid kit, all right? It comes with doctor-prescribed meds to treat over 39 medical issues. So, on hand, strong antibiotics for infections of all types. Plus, a doctor's easy guide so you know exactly what to take and when. No waiting to see the doctor. No waiting at the pharmacy. It's all in there. Every home should have at least one medical emergency kit. Order yours online in minutes. Your kit will be rushed to your door. Get 15% off at 
twc.health slash meat eater, but you got to use the promo code meat eater. That's promo code meat eater, okay, at twc.health slash meat eater. Okay, bust one out. Yeah, all right. Or bust one up. Putting his safety glasses on. I have to, and hopefully I won't lose a finger, which I almost did once. I see you tapping. What are you tapping? Just listening to the harmonics? Yeah. So um, uh, for a couple reasons. One, if there's a dull thud, that'd mean there'd be some sort of crack in it. So if I mess up here, then it's my fault. It's not so, the rock's fault. Uh, yet. So you're, you're, te- you're testing the soundness. Testing the sound. You want that nice sort of like... How do you jingle. choose your uh, pounding stone there? So this is uh, a sandstone. And, and depending, there's a lot that goes into it in terms of the, the type of rock that you're flint napping. Also, the size of your rock, you want to adjust your hammer stone to match it such that you can initiate a fracture but not actually push the rock out of your hand or, or out of your lap. Yeah, so, viewed that way, you, you, your hammer stone probably weighs a third or a quarter what your piece of... Yeah, probably something like that. Yeah. That's a... So... I am. A, just one little hit. One little hit. Ooh! And you Dude, this, that's beautiful. This nice flake. And you can see the... So the, he did one hit and knocked off like a chocolate chip cookie off there. So... Now, the first flakes that come off any nodule Damn. generally aren't that great because they've got that cortex, so they're not that sharp. Yeah, what's the other word for that stuff? It's called like a, like in general, how they describe it, a, um, patinate. A patina? Yeah, like a, is that not the right word? Well, patina is when it changes Damn, color. Well, we'll get even sharper. Patination. So Patination. that just means the coloration. Yeah, that's the coloration. Okay. Yeah. So, no, we'll get some sharper ones. I mean, that comes off sharp, though. All right. Now, these first ones, like I said, aren't so sharp because of that cortex, but we're going to get some real sharp ones here in a second. And what are you calling these pieces, if you're just going to say? Primary flakes. Okay. Yeah. And let me ask another question. You boys can look at this, and you can look at this and say that was broke off. That was broke off by a blow. Yes. That wasn't broke off by erosion. Correct. Yeah. Yes, yeah. So conchoidal fracture and stone tools, uh, especially when you start making more complex things. There's no mistaking them with, with nature. Yeah. yeah. It's not like a frost, like, like water got in there and expanded. No, it's a way like different that. kind yes, of crack. That's yeah. correct. Yeah. All right. Hmm. So we're getting a, that's a nice sharp edge. An interesting thing about this, if, if you're trying to visualize this at home is when he lays the rock down and hits it, uh, the piece he's blowing off isn't on top. He's blowing off a piece that is then left. He's doing this on his knee with a bunch of leather on his knee for padding. And he hits the top of the rock, and it doesn't knock off the top. He hits the top of the rock, and it blows a hunk off the bottom. And that's what Which is then left, like, laying on his lap, right? And that's why flint napping can be so difficult is because you don't actually see the product that you're making. And it just takes years of experience to know that this product that you're not seeing is only created with certain variables that you do see. Um, so, all right. All right, now we've got... Oh, that's pretty cool, man. Now, this is a really sharp flake. We've got like a couple sharp one. ones. Um, let's use this one, though, actually. Let's cut some leather. I brought some extra pieces. So... Fresh off the rock. Fresh off the rock. So this edge right here, go ahead and grab that. And, you know, this is some decent leather here. Holy shit, man, yeah. So just go ahead and slice that. Oh, yeah. There it goes. Slices leather. Look at that, man. So you can easily disarticulate an entire deal <laughs> oh, yeah. with just one I mean, it's yeah. like like when you run your thumb across it, it's, uh, 
I mean, it's like if you just did it to blind to someone, you said, what's that? They'd be like, oh, it's like a kitchen knife. Yeah. Well, let's, should we knock one off the obsidian? Oh. Let's see. Man, that's, I don't think you should mess that thing up, man. <laughs> you got more of those? I've got more. Yeah, I can knock oh. off a couple here. That one's too kind of nice. It's always funny when I travel with a bunch of rock, because um, they always go through my suitcase, and they're just like, what the hell is this? Yeah. Um, weapons. Yeah. <laughs> I got into antiquities. <laughs> Stone yeah. weapons. Like... Um, so what I'll do is I'm just going to prepare a small striking platform on this. What's that mean? So the striking platform in flint napping is the spot that you're going to hit. Um, so you're knocking the sharp. He's like dulling it. I'm dulling it. So basically I get a bigger bite when I strike huh. the flake. And I'm grinding it as well, which adjusts the angle slightly. Um, there's all sorts of variables that go into to flint napping. Now, what I'm going to do is I'm going to... Dude, I got to tell you real quick that yeah. there's two things I've avoided in life is uh, chess and flint napping. Why? Because I, I got a glimpse into each of them and realized that I was never going to really figure it out. And so why mess around? You know what? If you were able to... And this goes for all of you guys. If you want to come to the lab, I'll get you guys flint napping in a really? day. A day. Yeah, it just seemed like a deep, dark hole you could go into, man. Yeah, I mean, it, do, it becomes upset. Like, so, just from my experience, right? So, kind of like building bows. I've been flint napping for over 20 years. Um, two of those years, I apprenticed uh, one of the best flint nappers in the world, um, a guy named Bruce Bradley. And during that two years, I flint napped 10 hours a day. Seriously? Every day, yeah. Um, and then I uh, apprenticed another flint napper named Bob Patton, who's also one of the best in the world. And um, for, again, just... It's, it's an apprenticeship. It's like anything. It yeah, just yeah. takes a long time. But Will you explain your tool change here? Oh, yeah. Look oh, at that. Yeah. So this is uh, just antler. And antler allows you to strike different angles. Can I get a feel on that? Yeah, definitely. And okay. I got some bigger ones, too. Here's a moose for larger flakes. Oh, yeah. Look at that, man. Yeah. So, like, imagine, um, oh, how the hell do you describe that, Cal? Yeah. Ice cream cone. Yeah. Ice cream cone. <laughs> it almost looks like <laughs> the pedicle end of a moose antler. Yep. That's pretty. That's pr That's cool. Just like that. Okay, so, well, let me get a slightly bigger one here, just because if you're going to be holding it, I don't want you to lose a finger like I almost did. Now, there's a great there uh, quote here already where he's like, be careful with that. It gets sharp to the microbial level. Well, you know, it's funny. There's, uh, it does. It gets uh, sharp to the molecule, molecule level. level. Molecule yeah. level. And so I'm going to explain my knives to like to people after, like that from now on. Well, if we zoomed careful. in, yeah, <laughs> we would see a molecule on the end. Now, um, they're so sharp you might be like, well, why, how come surgeons don't use them? Surgeons don't like obsidian because it's so sharp that they can't feel the different layers of skin. It's because it just goes right through. Oh, you're shitting me. There's yeah. no yeah. resistance. Whereas with steel, they have just that slight little bit of resistance um, that allows them to sort of feel where they are. Now, here. Now, can... is that a true story? Didn't someone in the flint napping community actually... I can see Brody through it. ...have a, a surgeon perform a surgery with... Obsidian tools on, on themselves. So Don Crabtree was a flint napper in the 1950s and 60s. That seems like the name of a guy who'd be a flint driver. Yeah. Uh -huh. And uh, he made his own uh, Whiskey, knives. and he made his own knives. <laughs> okay, we're taking the uh, piece of obsidian, which like I said, like, you can look through it. Cut at your buddy, not your body. Yep. <laughs> oh, yeah, look at that, man. Like so a razor. right through. Wow. So... Damn. This stuff works. Um, Holy shit, that's sharp. Check that out. But, like that I said... That won't go through a mammoth. I don't know what will. Well, 
it went through my pinky finger, <laughs> uh, and they had to restitch everything back together. Oh, is that right? I saw my own bone. You never, if you can get through life and not see your own bone, that's a win. Yeah, for so sure. I, I've lost that one. Um, yeah, so there's so. certain things you just don't want to see no, on yourself. No, I got obsidian. You, you in my trust that it's there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he jumped back to Don Crabtree. Oh yeah, oh, so yeah, he, Donnie Crabtree. He made obsidian blades for his own surgery that the doctor used. Um, so that's that's pretty cool. Just like, as an experiment. Well, no, well, he had to have the surgery. He didn't, it wasn't like an optional surgery. But right? I mean, like he wanted to do that to see how it would work. Yes. Yeah. And okay. it worked. Huh. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. So it's... when you can get edges this sharp, just from nature, like you can see why this is such a useful thing for, for ancient people to. But how, like you take that, like that rock is, looks like black glass. Yes. Okay. It's beautiful. And obviously real sharp. Um, there has to be huge chunks of the continent where you're not going to have anything like that. I mean, you could walk around for months and not see anything laying around like that. What's amazing is there's chert and flint outcrops across North America. So now you'll only get certain types of rock in certain areas. So like you'll get obsidian in the Pacific Northwest, mm -hmm. but you know, we'll get chert's in Ohio and, and Kentucky and New England and the Southeast. And when you can't use chert or obsidian, you can use quartzites. Um, there's, there's nappable rock all across the continent. Okay. So, so you don't find areas where they had to use something totally different because they just had nothing that would work. Correct. On this continent. Yeah. They all had some version. Yeah. yeah. And we get, uh, nappable rock, uh, around the world. I mean, every yeah. paleolithic culture for the last 3 million years was able to make stuff. Find some kind of something. Yeah. Yeah. Um, all right. So you got, you knock off, what do you call that piece though? Any of those pieces you got in front of you that you took off of the big one? Just uh, flakes. I mean, I can turn these into little arrowheads. Yep. Um, but Show me a flake that you'd be like, okay, now I'm going to make me a Clovis point from it. So I'd probably get a, a slightly larger one. Let me do that real quick. So I'm going to I'm gonna get a platform here, and I'm going to strike off a really large flake. So you're going to dull the face. Yep. So. Okay. Then you get your giant Boston rock ready. Actually, I'm probably. Well, you're actually braiding it now to dull it up. Yes, yeah, and I'm, so you're smoothing it out. It's also slightly adjusting the angle of the platform I'm about to hit. Oh, really? And then I'm also going to probably strike this with the moose antler. So you feel like right now you kind of know what's going to happen. I know exactly what's going to happen. Tell me what's going to happen. Let's prove it. Yeah. So I'm going to turn this rock over. I'm right. gonna support it. With so you this. just you you took the edge off, sit, kind of sanded it down yep. at the angle you want, and now you're gonna hit it with a giant hunk of moose antler. Yep. And what is gonna happen? There should be a flake that comes off, that will be a, a nice decent sized flake. So you you gonna put money on it, Chester? Five bucks. Okay, five, Chester says five bucks. You can't do it. <laughs> so. Not as big. Hold on one second. Let me just... Uh... How many chances did you get? There's a double yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> no, no. That one was my fault. There's nothing wrong with this rock. It's okay. I don't have five bucks. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> no, no. Sometimes the platform crumbles. That happens. That's all right. That, that was the platform crumbling? That was the platform crumbling because I did not strengthen it enough. So here we go. So how much of this is like prescriptive versus like interpretive? Like, does somebody oh, take a yeah. piece of rock and go, I'm going to make this now? Or do they go, oh, this happened, I could make this, or I could make this, or I might make this? No, like, I, 
I could sit here and make a Clovis point from this rock. Like, so I, yeah. that's what I would. Yeah, but that, I'm saying like when, when somebody knocks off little like shards, oh, they go, oh, I'll make some arrowheads too. Oh, no, no. Um, everything is intentional. Okay, got uh, it. So it's not just you bust it all to pieces and see what you got. No, 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 right. not you, at you all. You have to do something specific to get something specific. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Hold on, sorry. There we go. Oh. So. Now that was what he said was going to happen. Yeah, that's what should have happened the first time. Now this flake broke, that but now. that's okay. Oh, you still got enough, right? Yeah, we still got enough. If you don't like it, hit another one. I believe you now. Oh, yeah, no, no, that's all right. I can keep going. You like this one? I brought uh, ones that I could sort of finish. Yep. Just but you like this one? That one's pretty good, but hold Like on, a fella me... could make a Clovis point. Yes, yeah, definitely. Because Clovis points can get small, too. Um that's for baby mammoths. That's for baby. <laughs> Do you think they did any kind of stab a little one through the heart? Let's <laughs> be mean. Do you think heart. they did any kind of maintenance on a point? Like, would they apply some mineral oil to it, or wash them, or put some dust on them? Um. Why? Just because they were big into because they were big into ochre. So ochre, when we get ochre found on Clovis artifacts, what I suspect is happening is that they're not like doing a ritual where they sprinkle the ochre on the artifact. I actually think what they've done is they've waterproofed the leather bag that the Clovis Point was in, in ochre. Because oh. mm. wasn't, wasn't there like some ochre involved with that Anzic One site? Yeah, and we have a um, what looks like to be a Clovis cache in Ohio that we just published, and there was ochre on those pieces too. You think it was their sack? I think there was a sack that they were all put in when they were buried, now, that disintegrated over the last 13,000 years, and the ochres left on the stone tools that were in the bag. Huh. So, that's what I think was happening, but uh, I could be wrong. I've been wrong before. Now, what are you doing? So, right now, I'm isolating this platform to get a much bigger bite on this plate that I'm about to take off. And what I'm going to do, too, is just adjust the angle slightly. Dude, what would you have given to sit around and nap some flint with the Clovis dudes, man? Do you think you'd be able to, like, uh, do you think you'd be better than they were? Or do you think they'd smoke you? There is no modern flint napper that would ever approach what a prehistoric napper could have done with their skill. Because they weren't brought up with it. Not brought up with it. And also, too, like, when you, when your life depends on a, on a tool or a weapon, like, you just understand it at an inherent and intimate level that someone who isn't dependent on it just can't. Yeah. So, so there's lots of flint nappers Like today. the compound interest of it. Every, like literally every ancestor you've ever had, had always done it. Yeah. And from the time you were a day old, it was happening around you. And and so there's yeah. modern flint nappers today, because there's quite a few hobby flint nappers. I think there's probably, I don't know, anywhere from eight to 10,000 in North America. They say, they think sometimes that they're better than ancient folks. I'm better than Clovis. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they're not, right? They're not. Because? Because what, they'll make a, a really pretty point and they'll compare it to Clovis ones. And they'll be like, oh, look, my flaking is better than this Clovis point. Well, look, the Clovis person did not give a crap about how their point looked. They wanted it to function. Yeah. If they had wanted to make a pretty point, they would smoke any modern napper. Um, so anyway, all right. So let's strike another really large flake off here. Got his moose antler. Got my moose. Sorry, the table's in there. Yeah. He's cocking back. Are there speed He's tangled napping? up in his microphone <laughs> wire. Other what? Go ahead. Are there speed napping competitions? Like, like sit down, make the Clovis point as fast as you can. 
Yeah, there are speed competitions. There are these things called nap-ins where Flint nappers. <laughs> yeah. No, no. Yeah, no. Nappers get together across the continent and get they sell and make stuff. And yeah, they're like little craft sort yeah. of things. And yeah, nap-ins are fun. It's, yeah. Take away the K and I'd be down for that one. But yeah. <laughs> are, are there examples of like ornamental points being found? Ornamental? Yeah. How do you know? So there are well, because they'd be of like a quality oh, oh, that wouldn't be utilitarian. Oh, I got you. Um, so we get Clovis points may have quartz crystal. God, this one, all these ones are flake. They're big, but they're snapping. Um, we get quartz crystal Clovis points, um, which, as far as I know, uh, don't seem to have been used. So that could be some sort of ornamental or symbolic thing. Hmm. Um, some people think that the the flute themselves were symbolic because it's so hard to do without breaking the point that it was some good omen for the hunt to come, that if you successfully flew yeah. your point. Yeah. I, you know, I'm just saying this is the, the idea is out there. Gets a little rich after a yeah, while. Yeah, that's, that's what happens. You so, know what? So Who knows, but we'll never know. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's fun to have ideas. So you could take these flakes, right? So we got nice size one. Oh, let me compare this. Compare it to, you know, something that's midway. So you think this could potentially be living in here? Yes. Yeah. I got a question for you. So you, like you're this. using a rock to knock off a piece of that rock. You're using an antler to knock it off. Why why wouldn't you use like a modern metal hammer or some tool like that? Well, because he's trying to figure out how dudes used to do it. No, I'm saying like oh. I'm asking what would happen oh. basically. Like, yeah, what, so what are the reasons for not doing that? You could use like uh, a copper bopper. Which is what they're called, copper boppers. That's what you guys call them. That's what we call them. Nappins, boppers. Yeah. yeah. Nappins and boppers. That's a good title for the show. <laughs> Nappins and boppers. Remember that. It's gonna be yeah. That's gonna be my podcast. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I'll have my lawyer send over later. Yeah, that's cool. Uh, <laughs> but uh, sometimes you do want to use modern tools if the the question that you're testing isn't involved in the production of those tools. But if we're interested in sort of how quickly or how economic you can make a Clovis point, you wouldn't want to use modern tools to answer right. that question. So yeah. you could use modern tools uh, to, to flake, and, and people do. But... Let me hit you with this one, related yeah. to Brody's question. Yeah. If I said to you, make me a the Clovis point as fast as you could possibly do it, and you can use whatever you want, um, would you... Uh, be like, oh, sweet. I'm going to use my uh, baseball I still, bat. No, I would uh, still use Antler. Because I, I rarely ever use modern tools. So yeah. I would probably suck with modern tools. I got you. Yeah. I got you. But you're never sitting around being like, you know what would be great for this is aluminum. Or We got some aluminum points right there. Oh, okay. So, oh. Um, yeah. Because aluminum, weirdly, has the same density as chert. That's just some. I wouldn't even know that that is aluminum. Yeah. That's aluminum? Yeah, it's aluminum. I mean, I, I, I would, I, would th I thought you had painted, I thought you had painted some chert. No. So this is a Clovis point I did out of uh, chert. This is that same Clovis point made out of aluminum or cast in aluminum. Oh. And it breaks the same way? No. Not I mean, it'll bust like on an impact or is it better on impact? Oh, much better on impact. Aluminum is much a better. Yeah, much uh, better. Um, but the, the advantage of aluminum for certain experimental tests is it doesn't break. So even because it has I the same see. density, like it has the same ballistics once it's in the air. Um, I'm with you. And so, uh, yeah. so you can test other stuff and uh, eliminate stuff. the breakage. Yeah, that's pretty interesting. It's a pain in the butt to keep making stuff. So is that cast off that? You took the stone and made a cast and yes, cast exactly. the aluminum. Yeah. All right. Met my wife does a lot of thrifting. Yeah. And, What's that mean? Uh, 
she'll go to like an estate sale oh. and then come home with stuff that I don't want. <laughs> and it feels mm-hmm. like every That's single, how she describes it. Every single estate sale has arrowheads for sale. Is there any way like for the layman to look at something like that and identify if it was created by someone like you or someone 5,000 years ago? Yes. Really? Uh, yeah, definitely. So if there are little chips sort of, you can see that there's this chip is still on there. It's just a, a flake that didn't come off all the way. That's from modern napping. Those little chips, while they occurred in the past, come off after 10,000 years or so. Mm. Um, so if you see those little chips, you know that's modern. Around the edge. Around the edge. Okay. Um, now, there are ways to get rid of those chips. <laughs> and because there's been some cases of people, you know, being less than honest with uh, oh, yeah, man. what they made. There's a famous, there's a guy that duped everybody on a bunch of Clovis points. <laughs> yeah. Um, His name was Woody something. Woody Blackwell. Yeah. Uh, lives in du- the... Duped a bunch of, mu- du- duped some museums and shit on Clovis points, right? Well, uh, he uh, sold uh, a group of, of Clovis tools that he said was a, a Clovis cache. Um, and this is all published in the New Yorker magazine yep. um, to a collector named Forrest Fenn. And oh, I'll, I'll, I don't know that Fenn was involved in it. Yeah. We've so, covered him extent. That's like, that's like yeah, Spencer's best friend. Fenn treasure. <laughs> Did you find the treasure? No. Oh, okay. <laughs> but it was like 60 miles from here. Oh, there you go. Yeah. So Woody uh, tried to sell uh, artifacts that he made as genuine Clovis artifacts to Forrest Fenn. I think it was like $95,000. And um, the transaction went through, and uh, it was then discovered uh, that these were modern replicas. How'd they figure it out? Well, you know how he got around the, you know how he got around the loose flake thing? A rock tumbler. Really? And you know how he got duped? Check, how, do you know the story better than me? Well, he used Brazilian stone um, as... Or sorry, not how he got duped, how he got... Uncovered. Yeah. So one of the Clovis points, or maybe two of them, were made from stone from Brazil. And uh, that stone, I guess, only shines a certain way when you have a UV light over it. And so, the, like, Clovis folks in North America weren't using stone from Brazil. Mm. Oh, but I heard another part of yeah, the story. Yeah, there could be other things. Well, one of the parts of the story is someone had a chemical analysis done on the point, and they found some crazy coating material on it. Yeah. So that's... And they were able to find out what the coating material was, went to the manufacturer, who does he sell the coating material yep. to? One of his clients are the people that make rock tumblers. Yeah. And then it led wow. to this thing that he was, because he's trying to create this like 10,000 years of laying around look. Huh. And I, do you know the, the, the collector, Tony Baker, you ever hear him? I... Tony was, I stayed at his house. He was one oh, of my really good friends. I stayed friends. at his house. Yeah. We probably stayed in the same That's, room. That's, we probably did. And Simone, and yeah. Yeah. To, yeah. No shit. I love Tony. Yeah, I slept I mean, over his house. Yeah, Tony, it was a huge loss when he passed. You were in the house. I Ma- guarantee we slept in the same guest room. Many times. Yeah. He told me a story where he was at an estate sale and saw a Folsom Point bolo tie. Did you hear this story? No, I have not heard this tie. And he said, that's real. Bought the bolo tie for a couple bucks. Took the stone off, and on the back of the stone was, you know how they put, like, white out and then a label? Yeah. It was a museum, like... It was missing from your museum, and he found the museum. Yeah, that's awesome. Wow. Yeah. yeah. It was a museum collection piece that had gone missing, and someone put it on a bolo tie. Well, you know, they, someone probably <laughs> saw that number and... Hiding just, in plain sight. Yeah. And he's like, Seth, he said, well, he's Seth like, likes bolo ties. Yeah, he said one look, and he just knew. He's like, there's something about it. He's like, is that, because that's a real point. Yeah. No, that's it. And, 
One other way to get those little chips off, not that I'm condoning fraud in any way, <laughs> is you can put the, uh, the napped point in, in water and then put it in the freezer. And then when the ice gets Whoa. under that little chip, it pops it off. Oh, really? And then, you know, so. Got and those that? chips are going to be around the outer edge, you're saying? Um, well, if the flake gets driven across the face of your tool, you might uh -huh. get them in the middle too. But either way, you can get them off if you know what you're doing. Got it. But it has a, it'll look fresh. It'll look fresh. And I have never found anything of significance in the field. I would just like to say that. So, because <laughs> that's a danger for me. Because what do you I, mean? Well, because I can make this stuff, right? And so I always have to be careful that, mm. you know, anything I make doesn't end up in the archaeological record. Oh, and And so um, when I make pieces, I always sign them with a diamond scribe. Um, so if anyone ever does microscopic analysis on it, um, you'll see my initials in the year mm. uh, on the piece. Got it. Um, so they never get mixed up. Yep. So. Okay. Uh, Speaking of which, um, you, I... I, you know, before I came, I did a little research. I saw you have a birthday coming up. Oh, yeah. So, so I thought I would make Real you soon. a little birthday gift. Really? Um, so you can just maybe unro or unroll it a little careful. Oh, <laughs> man. Wow. Explain what we're looking at here. So this is a, a type of knife called a Salutrian laurel leaf. Really? And and this is probably one of the, the most difficult uh, things to do in three million years of flint napping. Um, they're super thin. The flaking is really described as, as very bold. You see all the flakes are really large. Oh, yeah. And uh, this was a style of, of knife or point that was made about eighteen to 21,000 years ago. In but, Europe, right? In Europe, yep. And uh, no shit. it's Look thought to be the pinnacle of, of stone tool working. And so... Even um, cooler than Clovis. Even cooler than Clovis. Well, depends. It's you know, just who you <laughs> ask. But they're pretty cool. So I thought, uh, happy birthday. Oh, that's beautiful, man. Up. Thank you. Yeah, not at all. Dude, that is gorgeous. So are you going to like call the what part? A uh, Salutrian laurel leaf. Huh. So, and it's signed. So if I see it on Sotheby's. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'll be like, genuine. <laughs> That's right. Wow. Where's, where is it signed? So it's signed. You have to look at it just right. But um, on this flake scar, there's M-I-E in 2022. Huh. Right on this one. Could Steve like cut a on. Christmas ham with that thing? Oh, yeah. Skin a beaver? Yeah, or a mammoth. <laughs> I might skin a beaver with it. Yeah. No, I don't want to mess it up very much. I'm going to drop it. I still don't see it. We may need a direct light, but... Oh, so you do it really fine. Yes, I do it fine so it doesn't sort of detract from... But it's in there. It's in there. Okay. Thank you, man. It's gorgeous. Tell me again, Salutrian what leaf? Laurel leaf. Laurel leaf, because it's the shape of a laurel leaf. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mally just stabbed that into Brody. <laughs> it'd work it right looks like work. it'd work <laughs> well so that's the thing I was so nervous bringing because I made one for Corinne too because she's done so much work like getting everything set and um, she has a Clovis one um, and so I'm going to ask this for Steve yeah is Corinne's nicer well they're different cultures <laughs> they're just they're just, <laughs> do you know that they're, plus they're, this is this is hafted onto a antler yeah with like a split fork um you can imagine, like, stab Brody between the ribs, turn around, and give him a Larry Cohen Merle. <laughs> <laughs> Larry Moen Curly with those fork horns. Get the guy the behind you with the antler, the guy in front of you with the blade. He'd be, he'd be like, he'd bleed to death blind. Yeah. <laughs> just just him? Yeah. He's closest. Yeah, that's good. I mean, I already pinned Phil to his chair with my Adelaide. <laughs> All right, let's, uh, let's progress along. Yeah. Uh, 
let's get to the magic part. Yeah, all right. Well, I, I want to see you do the thing that has baffled anthropologists about why did they knock the thing when there's a 25% chance it's just going to ruin the whole damn yeah. thing. So and you've already done all the work. Yes, I brought several. Because the other thing, too, about flint napping is you want to bring backups because if you break it, you can quick just like pull out another one. Sure. And you'll be good to go. So we've got, you know, different stages and I've got one that's basically ready to flute. So I do need to do a little bit of preparation on this thing to get what's called the fluting nipple. Uh, which, <laughs> yeah, That's a good title for the show, the fluting nipple. That's going to be my second podcast. <laughs> um, but so it'll just take a second to get this going. But what's this thing they talk about? Clay had some guy talking about that they maybe used a lever. There's you know by that? no evidence for that. But it's just reverse engineered or whatever you call it. They're like, it would work. So there is a, a flint napper, Bob Patton, who I mentioned earlier, who you can, he could make Clovis points and Folsom points and, and sort of do them the way I do and just hit them directly. You don't need a lever. Okay. Um, so you're not buying it? No, I'm not buying it. Um, okay, so you got your Clovis point, and it's pretty well like a Clovis point, except for it's missing the diagnostic flute. channel flukes. That is correct. That run the length, the con, oh, the concave channels that will run the length of the point and give it its signature look, its significance. That is correct. Now, And then not only that, but diagnostic, right? Like no one else made them like that. Um, that's also untrue. Uh, uh. So who else is making them? So uh, amazingly, in the Saudi Arabian Neolithic. Okay, local folks. Oh no, not okay. local. <laughs> but go on. But no, in we, the Saudi Arabian Neolithic, uh, they are making and fluting points. Really? So just in the same way that like birds and bats and insects all can fly. Yeah, but that doesn't mean they're all cousins. They're not cousins. This convergent <laughs> evolution. Same yeah. thing in stone tool technology. Uh, you can get convergent evolution. Really? Like they arrive at the same The ideas. same solution. Um, all right. So what I'm going to do now is I'm actually going to start to pressure flake this a little bit. Now, before you do this, I want to ask you a couple things. Yeah. Uh, how long were you at this before you tried this? Uh, probably... Seven or eight years before you tried knocking out a, a, a before you tried fluting a point. Yes, yeah. yeah. And is it easier to flute a Clovis point than a Folsom point, or is it the same hard? There, it's different because the um, Folsom point runs all the way to the end. It does run all. So the you way presumably got to do some more work on it afterward, right? Well, so there's a there's two issues there um, with Folsom. Uh, you in some ways have a better chance of success because you're doing a lot more preparation ahead of time okay. to get that long flute. Um, the other issue is because Folsom points are shorter, you don't have as much bending um, in the point, which could break it. Got now, it. Folsom points are really hard to flute. So just like Clovis points. Can you make are, one of those? Um, I've got one here where you can see the oh, flutes. Oh, and you knock those out. I knock those out. Man, that's beautiful, man. The problem with Folsom, though, is it takes more time, like a lot more time. That's a beautiful point. They're, the Folsom Folsoms are like, take more time. Way more time. Yeah, because it's you're doing so much preparation to basically create a morphology on the point so you can get those long channels. Yep. It just takes a much longer time. And you know how you shit talk Clovis about how they weren't mammoth hunters? Yeah. These guys are bison hunters. They are definitely bison hunters. And Clovis were bison hunters too. Oh, yeah. Okay. So, and that's the thing. We, just going back to the Clovis hunting, we get statistically more impact scars with Clovis points associated with bison than we do with mammoth. 
And the reason oh. for that is because they are hunting bison and not hunting mammoth. Yep. So. Got it. All right. So let me just. Uh, That's a beautiful point, man. Oh, okay. You're back at the. Now there you got it. You got like not an early man tool. So, well, it depends. Okay. So not Clovis. It's made out of copper. Yep. We actually get the earliest metal tools anywhere in the world in North America. From the Great Lakes tribe? From the Great Lakes, yeah, yeah, exactly. It's called the old copper culture and, and earlier. Um, now, I could use an antler tine to do this, but you have to constantly resharpen antler tines when oh, you're pressure flaking. I see. And just, it's just easier. So it wears the tine down. It'll wear the antler tine down. Yes, yeah. And I so see. you just got to keep getting it the right shape. So and, you're shaping the stone and the tool. Yeah, and it's got just it. a pain in the butt. Yeah, um, I'm with you. You have to get this fluting nipple just the right shape. Fluting nipple. Because when it's all prepared, you'll look at it. I don't know if it looks like a nipple, but that's what they call it. Yeah. Um, just that motion alone is just really interesting. I mean, you're just kind of like pressing down on the edges. Well, pressure flaking, unlike percussion, which is what I was doing earlier, does take a little bit of, of strength, especially if you're driving flakes um, across the face of whatever piece you're flint napping, so I'm going to drive a few pieces off right now. You're going to not do pressure, but you're going to do some striking. No, no, I am going to do pressure, pressure. Um, where I'm going to really just push these things far across the face. So really, it's all in the legs now. Oh, like you're getting your hand power by like, Squeezing basically my... you're like Suzanne Summers in that thigh master right now. <laughs> I don't know if I should be... <laughs> That's an old ass reference. All of yeah. these references come from the '80s <laughs> or earlier. So you're like pressing on the top side of that. Some of us and are born with great legs. It's breaking off the. <laughs> it's Some breaking off the bottom side. Say that one more time. Sorry, I was too busy thinking about Suzanne the Summer's thighs. I don't know. Um, so you're just basically pressing on like the top side, and it's busting off the bottom side. Yeah. So like, what I'm doing? Yeah, I'm pushing on the edge, and. Basically, I'm, I'm pulling the flake, and then... Using... But your strength's coming. You're like, you're, like, pinching it between your legs just to drive your hands together. That's exactly right. Huh. So... So a lot of pressure. A lot of pressure. So, let's see here. We've Do any of those nap-ins end in bloodshed? Always. <laughs> Always. <laughs> they get to drinking at those? Oh, yeah. I mean, like, <laughs> there are some terrible... We actually just uh, finished a Man. survey where... <laughs> We surveyed uh, flint napper injuries from around the world, <laughs> and they're real bad. I mean, people are getting cuts on every part of their body. People are using, hitting moose billets into their nuts. Like, huh. it's, yeah. Did you get any femoral artery? Uh, I could see messing around Some, between yeah. your legs with sharp things. Oh, you people get, you getting flakes in their eyes. Yeah. That's I a had great a survey. Piece, yeah. So we're going to, we're doing the statistical analysis now to <laughs> look at patterns and, and where people are hurting themselves the most. And so, all right, hold on. Yeah. You might be able to come up with something that uh, relates back to early man. Yeah. would be like, you know, the reason that they were like this was. Uh, I read this thing. I can't remember what book it was. The guy was talking about um, the injury suites that they would see on Neander thal bones and this guy became curious about the suites of injuries they would see on them all the fractures and that was eric trinkhouse oh that and yeah. he got to talking to a physician who works on bull riders and they found this like uh 
like a direct correlation between the in, the types of bone fractures on Neanderthals and the types of bone fractures on bull riders. And he came up with this idea that they had what he had described as a confrontational style of hunting. Like that they're in there mixing it up, you know. Like maybe they they took one shot with something <laughs> and then jumped and then, and then jumped right in. Okay, I'm gonna jab a little bit with this stone point and everybody's gonna pile on. Yeah. I'm gonna get them pissed with this stone point. And <laughs> it's game on. Remember, we don't want them to move too much. So oh, lots of hemorrhoids too, because bull riders got those. Do they? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, all that hemorrhoidal t- tissue decays over the years, man. All right, so we're we're almost there to, to flute this thing. And what's that nipple called again? The fluting nipple. Oh, that's right. That's yeah. a, I should be able to remember that. All right, so now this flute probably will go to about there. But hold on, because you got to knock out two flutes. Yes. So that you just prepared the first flute, or you've re- you've prepared both flutes? No, no, this is the first one. Okay, so then you're gonna go back to the drawing board and, and prepare and do, and do another nipple. Exactly. And is your nipple specific to the face you're working on? Yes. Okay. Yeah. So you've nippled it for the I don't know what right now is the top or bottom on when it's laying on your leg. It will be for. Like the flute's going to be left laying on your leg or it's going to blast off into the air? The flute will come off my leg or It'll be against left my leg. Left on your leg. Yeah, okay, yeah. I got you. All right. So Sorry. tell me before you do it. Yes, I will. And just because it's a bit always risky, I just want to make sure it's right. Now, what, um, there's a high likelihood this will fail. Um, it could be, it's like 25%, but I mean, my, I haven't messed up in a while, so I probably just screwed myself by saying that, um. But which is why I always bring extras. Yeah. So twenty five percent failure or twenty five percent success. Twenty five percent failure. So. And by you... failure, you mean that whole thing just breaks. Yes, the whole thing will just shatter. Which the breaks, cool. I have it. If it doesn't break, you can have oh, it. Sweet. <laughs> Either way. Are you doing it right now? No, no, no. Oh. I'm gonna. You always strike off the uh, the flute. Here, I'm just trying to get the angle a little bit. There we go. That's much better. Hold I on. could definitely see how you'd cut yourself pretty good messing around with this stuff. Oh, yeah. No, it, it can be real bad. So could you, I'm sure you've thought about this many, many times. Could you describe, like, what do you think the situation this is happening in, in back in, like, Clovis times? When you you're got a man stuck in the thing, mud. Right. <laughs> you're like, hurry up! And I, ha- and I found a chunk of chert. <laughs> He's getting out. Like, are you in a relaxed situation? Like sitting on a knob looking over a herd oh, bison? We, well, you wouldn't be, I don't think you'd be making these like nearby. In the moment. Well, yeah, the Mesa site, be... the Mesa site that we, we had some people on top of the Mesa site yeah. and the Mesa site they think is a flint nap and hangout. Hundreds. Like a little Mesa top, no sign of campgrounds, like no signs of tent rings. It was a little lookout perch. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of points, thousands of flakes. Were you there with? Uh, I was at that site with Boss. Oh, okay. Now with, with Mike Hunt. Okay. Yeah. Because um, Boss Melcher, I think, was up there too. Yep, at one point. Yep. Yeah. But their theory there is it was you could sit up there and double dip because it's a lookout. But they're like, it just seems like people sat up there and nap Flint. It was like too far from water or something for a good yeah. Camp, you had right? to walk up on this high little lookout, and they think it was like the boys up there <laughs> shooting the shit and napping, uh, waiting to see if something comes through. It was a nap in. Yeah, that's right. The first one. Well, no. Early napping. Early napping, yeah. All right. Now, here You're I am. ready to go for I'm it. I'm going to get ready to go for it. I've never done it with wires and stuff. Phil, can you do a drum roll? Yeah, here we go. You can take that off. 
Oh, yeah. Yeah, take that thing off, yeah. Oof. You're really getting hung up in there, man. Yeah. It looks so unclovis-like <laughs> to have that headphone on, that headset on. All right, so let's see. Oh, hold on, hold on. tell me what you can do before you do it. So what I'm going to do is you have to, when you flute it, you have to hold it a different way. Okay. Because you want to basically drive the, the flute off but cause as little bending as possible. So if I was to hit the flute off just straight down with the point flat, mm -hmm. that would basically cause this thing to snap. Now, by holding the point vertically, I'm hitting straight down along the length of the point, which doesn't cause as much sort of bending microscopically. You know, and you got it wrapped in there, obviously, so you don't just gash your hand to bits. Yeah, because I'd... Yep. Yeah. It's just a... It's like grip and protection. If that happens, though, it's a shame that this is a podcast. Yep. Like, Because when I do demos for my classes and stuff, that's all they're waiting for is for me to hurt myself. <laughs> um, and so... See, I'm just... I'm cheering for you right now, man. I want... This will be the first time I've ever seen a, 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 a flute as much as I've talked about. Oh, God. Now I feel like there's pressure. There's I don't, don't want to let all, you down. All positive vibes. We want, yeah, want it to happen. Okay, he's getting ready yeah. to hit his fluting nipple with a moose ant elk antler or moose. You know, I don't know what the hell this is. It's some sort big of big old hunk antler. Yeah. Um, oh, that's so, how you're gonna do it. Yeah. So, and I do a, a few practice runs. He's swinging at it like he's got a blackjack. And got it. No shit. Really? <laughs> yep. Oh, Perfect. Man. Look at that. That was badass, man. So you do all those practice runs, basically a line everything up. Um, Dude, and then you just, you just, so cool. sort of just tap it. So I can do the other one now, the other side and risk breaking it again. You can just picture up on the Mesa site, dudes being like, son of a bitch. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, it's funny. Dave Meltzer, right, who's been on this August show, yeah. he worked at a site as a teenager called Thunderbird in Virginia. And at Thunderbird, it was uh, next to a, a river, and they were making Clovis points. Now, the, the river gently flooded and basically covered and buried everything perfectly at this Thunderbird site, so much so that you can like kind of see where people were sitting with the rocks around oh, them. Really? Yeah. Now, at one of the spots where someone was sitting, you find the base of a Clovis point and the tip is 30 meters away. I read about that. Yeah. And basically someone 11,000 years ago <laughs> got pissed. They broke their Clovis point and chucked it. Um, and yeah, so, I read about that. And weren't they able to somewhere like at Lindenmeyer or something, they were able to match some of the channel flakes? Yeah, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. It's so, so wild, man. All right. So I guess I'll risk, I'll do the other one now. Another nipple. All right. Okay. Uh, uh, the second one's got to be harder because it's thinner now. It is. Yeah. So more pressure. It but. needs to be a different kind of, like a better drum roll. Did they ever do a double drum roll? Two people doing it? Now, one thing too I is, too. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to have to do a little bit more work. It builds, right? Like one guy starts, another drummer comes in. I'll have to do just a little bit more work because this is a little flat. And when, okay. it's, when it's flat, the flakes don't go as far. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to drive flakes off and basically try to create a little convexity. A little hump. A little hump. Hmm. Oh, this is a deep, dark well, flint nap, man. Well, I think this is the thing, right, is all this making this technology is really great, but what where the big breakthroughs have come since we founded the lab at Kent State is is figuring out how this stuff was used. Mm -hmm. And and more and more, we need to start, like, getting this stuff out into situations where hunters are using it and, and so we can understand the science behind you that's, know, how this works. Because it's different in that's reality. That's what I was going to yeah, ask you. Versus like, the have laboratory. you, like, have people use stuff you've made – 
to kill deer, for example? No. no. So everything we've done has been in the lab. So what we really need now is to balance those very controlled lab experiments with the reality of, of actual hunting. So, and, and this goes back to the mammoth as, as well. So what we would love to do, and if you guys are game and we can somehow get access to it, is when an elephant dies, either at a zoo or if there's some cull somewhere, um, I will make all of the Clovis weapons and tools and we could hurl them into that dead elephant to see how well they penetrate. Oh, and, you'll get that. You'll get someone to volunteer that up. That yeah, I called dibs on being on the crew. And, and so, but if, if we could, if we could potentially, we would learn scientifically so much because we don't even really understand the intercostal distance between the ribs of things like elephant. How much space is there on average between mm -hmm. ribs and stuff? Like how deep is it to the heart? We could find no evidence or data on the distance from the outside of an elephant to its lungs or its heart or its liver, all that stuff needs to be measured. So if you guys were game at some point, we would love to to do that. We would create all the tools and you guys could spend all day hurling yep. at an elephant. Well, we just got to find a zookeeper with a dead elephant. Yeah, it takes yeah. a long time to drop a big freezer tag here in North America. You or know, if, uh, you, you know you got to listen to? We did a podcast episode with a guy named Dr. Ed Asby, who's not a doctor. like He's like a medical doctor. Yeah, yeah. But anyways, he, he um, to test a lot of his stuff, and he was looking for that same thing, like how can you get a bunch of stuff? He would go to where they're doing game farm culling. Yeah, yeah. And at game farm culling sites, he was able to like launch projectiles into stuff that was going to die anyways, whether he was there or not kind of thing. Well, there was situation. George Frizen, who was a Wyoming rancher, also, I know uh, that guy. Yeah. A scientist. I don't the, know him by. Uh, yeah. yeah, he published. And, but he was an archaeologist in the National Academy of Sciences as well, and he he went over to Africa and, and threw Clovis points at mammoths, but for whatever reason, did not record elephant. Elephant. Yeah, mammoths are dead. You're right. Yeah. yeah, he did not record how deep they penetrated or anything like that. Well, did he write? He basically just said like they can puncture the hide a little bit. Um, that the paper's kind of strange, but uh, <laughs> like you're like, but what about <laughs> yeah. But it was 1989, yeah. and so maybe just it wasn't as rigorous. But um, so anyway, the point is, we need to hurl Clovis points at, at dead elephants to better understand. God, it seems like a very solvable problem. Yeah, yeah. and it does. Yeah. Um, all right, so I'm just going to do some pressure flaking here. We had a great uh, uh, professor at the University of Montana. We were taking uh, early peoples of Montana or native peoples of Montana. Oh, that sounds like a good one. It was a great, good one, but one of the first examples to just kind of get people's heads thinking about the past and how they relate to present day was um, he had a site up on the, back in the overhead projector disc, had a site up on the overhead projector and it was a little triangle of um, flakes and he's like, okay, what is this? And you're looking at it and there's like a circle of flakes, but there's um, like a, a center point with no flakes. There's um, two points running off from the center point with no flakes on it. And he's like, what is this? What is this? What is this? And what it's it is, shadow it, of a man sitting. it's the shadow of a man sitting there napping. Yeah. Right. And it's like, his legs. Right? You're like brushing a little off your legs. You're brushing, you know? And so there's like this core area with a bunch of flakes and it was no just... No shit, really? It was such uh, a good thing. Like you could hear the whole class be like, ah, ha, ah, ah. yeah. 
I got to say, this is refreshing to my normal sort of like popular napping because I've napped on History Channel and Discovery Channel. They always have me like sitting in the middle of the woods by myself, like <laughs> on a yeah, log. Not and in they, a studio. Yeah. But also too, it's so weird because like anyone who thinks of me napping and they seem, they just think that that's what I do. I just go by myself into the woods and like yeah. make stone tools. There's that hippie that goes to those nappings. Yeah. Just by himself. And um, so this is, uh, this is refreshing. So you're getting your other... I'm working the other nipple. Oh, no. nipple. <laughs> I'm, I'm preparing the other footing. I shouldn't say working the other nipple. That doesn't sound... No, man, right. I, I like it. Um, That'd be a good name for the show, working the other nipple. We'll probably call it, I don't know. What was the other one we had? Three. Boppers and nappers. Boppers or... and nappins. Yeah. Drum roll, Phil. Oh, man. Oh, no way. Don't, don't do the drum roll until he starts doing the practice swings. All right. What are the chances now? 25% failure rate on the first flake. It's got to go up for the second flake. I would think so because it's thinner, but I, I mean, to be honest, I, I don't think we've ever tried to estimate that. Are you feeling good about it? Um, I never feel good about it just because... A lot of pressure. Well, also too, like you want to sort of have your eye on, on the ball. and mm -hmm. no, you know. no, no time for feeling. Yeah, that's right. When you're doing those practice swings, are you imagining yourself inching ever, like not inching, millimetering ever closer to the strike? Is that, that what you're doing? That's you're what you want to do. You want to basically, the first couple of ones I'm lining up and then I'm getting closer and closer and you just want to catch you know, that platform. So you're like, like, okay, get warmed up, closer, 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 yeah. closer, 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 and then it's going to hit and it's going to barely hit. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So, all right. Got the antler. Got it. It's practice swinging. Oh, a little more dressing. Practice swing, practice swing, practice. <laughs> I'll stop. No, no, cool. <laughs> I, I like the challenge, so no, keep going. <laughs> no, I'll stop. No, no, no. I, don't, I don't need to do that. No, no, let's go. go I, I don't think it's adding anything to the show. Looking nervous. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, man. Second one broke. Oh, oh so, man. So what do you think went wrong on that swing? Steve went wrong on that. No, no, no. no, no. <laughs> Dude, it's a 25% chance per face. I think there's a one in two Ozzy who's gonna bust the thing. And That's like when Steve's like, shoot, shoot now. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, and to be honest, like what exactly is the problem? What I've just created here, we find in the archaeological record all the time. So ah, there you, you know, know. one flute now. This off. was this was my fault. I think what I did what was, was your fault. Oh, because I, I basically I hit um sort of two at a, the wrong angle. I should have hit directly down rather than yeah. More to the side. Now you're Monday morning quarterbacking. Yeah. yeah. Now, it, when, it, like, <laughs> if someone was doing that and you've got that front piece there, is that still usable for anything? Oh, yeah. We could easily turn that into Clovis Point right. or whatever. So, and I've done that before. It's not a total loss. Yeah. Oh, no. No, yeah. they'd be like, well, screw it. Now he got out of the mud anyway. The man with walk <laughs> on. Hardy. You're napping as fast as you can. <laughs> like, so, but yeah. So, what you just saw was uh, an actual archaeological. Fuck up. You know, so. actual occurrence. Yeah. So besides you um, needing dead elephants, yeah. they've already died. They already died anyways. Yeah. And people want to contribute to research. Yeah. And like, not just read, but like a pertinent question about contribute to research of a thing that's like a pertinent question about 
history, humanity, what our capabilities of, kind of like one of the great historical mysteries. Yeah. Like what happened to all those big ass animals? Climate change. But the climate changed all the time, dude. So that is an assumption though. No, that it's not th- an assumption. No, 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 no. It's an assumption that the end of the Pleistocene climate change is similar to climate oh, changes of the past. Sure. And, and there, there seems to have been, and again, I'm not an expert on climate change, um, but uh, the, the changes that occurred at the end of uh, the last 10,000 years may have been much more dra- dramatic than what occurred in other interglacials. Sure. Um, there were interglacial periods that got so warm that the pedestal of the Statue of Liberty today oh, yeah. would have been underwater. It was that warm during some of the interglacial oh, periods. Yeah. And the shit lived through that. But whether or not that caused some sort of detriment to population sizes or that would have then when they get to the next one. So it becomes almost like a degradation over mm-hmm. long time. Because we know from you know other time periods that extinctions occur all the time. Everything goes extinct eventually. Yeah. So it could just be a whittling away over tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of years. Allow me to hit with another zinger. Bring it up. Okay. I got a zinger that's going to leave you uh, crawling. All right. For mercy. Begging for mercy. (laughs) Humans, okay, had been in Africa millions of years. Yeah. Their shit didn't go extinct. That's true. Why is that? Because they co-evolved with human hunters. Their elephants didn't go extinct. Their they, big old rhinos didn't go extinct. Or they didn't hunt elephants. But you're saying they didn't hunt them here. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so Clovis con- is real. I'm, I'm so confused. I'm so confused. No, I, don't, I don't understand my own point either. No, no, that's all right. But <laughs> it's a thing that Blitzkrieg people like to bring up. Yes. That's like yeah. the whole basis of the Blitzkrieg deal yeah. is like, they're like, look what happens all over the world, right? Humans yeah. show up and then there's a contemporaneous that's die-off. True. Yeah. Okay. And you like the the mora? What's that big ass bird in New Zealand? The moa, yeah. the moa, the moa, yeah. and the Maori people. Yeah, right. Bunch of shit in Australia. Okay, big birds go away. Islands get hit hard. Yeah, and then you go and be like, but in Africa, they kept their camel, their hippo, their rhinos, their elephants. How else do you explain that? Well, they didn't hunt them. There's, as far as I know, there are oh, no hunting sites in Africa. Yeah, there's no hunting sites but in Africa. Why? Okay. Why did the global climate change not kill those elephants? Well, because I mean, climate change in North America is a, a different thing in like a northern hemisphere than it would be in the equator. Like climate change hits different parts of the globe differently, mm-hmm. and, and so if climate change in Africa was not as dramatic, um, animals can survive there in a way that they wouldn't in North America. Want me to hit you another zinger? I love zingers. But the but the megafauna in the equatorial west western hemisphere went away. The equatorial western hemisphere. That's yeah, that's true. So it's not an equator issue. I should write a paper about how Well, birds. but the issue, but it's also not an Africa issue either. I mean no, it's not uh, South Africa. America is different than Africa. So the point was just that there's different yeah areas that could be affected differently. But you do admit that it's an interesting wrinkle. Oh, 100%. Oh, and I'm not saying too that we have answers to any of this stuff. Yeah. Um, I, and, and to be honest, I think this Clovis Point issue penetration thing, how deep they penetrate. 
Like at the end of the day, it is an engineering and physics question. Is it possible in some way to get a point this size going at 31 meters per second? Is there some trick that Clovis people had to maybe have these things penetrate deeper than what we can do today? And to kill thousands and thousands of mammoths. Is that possible? So there aren't any more left yeah. to kill. And so like this issue is not closed. And no one should think it is closed. Um, it, it's an interesting question that we need like lots of different scientists. And we need lots of dead elephants. We need lots of dead elephants. But I think the cool thing about experimental archaeology is that, look, there's lots of flint nappers out there. People can learn to flint nap. These are experiments you could potentially do in your backyard, right? So if you doubt my results or anyone else's, like there's no reason why you can't buy some Clovis points and half them and, and see how deeply they penetrate, you know, various media that you've got in your back, carcasses, whatever. That's a good point. Someone so, could be like, you boys got it all wrong. That's right. And they half the thing up and then he can write you a letter and be like, hey man, here's what I think was going on. Well, and, and the thing too out. is at the end of the day, I don't give a flying rat's ass if I'm right or wrong. I want to know what happened. Mm -hmm. and, and I think that's the difference between a scientist that is is committed to evidence and, and one that's not like because even if you're wrong your hypothesis is incorrect being incorrect is a contribution because you've shown that other scientists shouldn't go down that avenue of inquiry mm -hmm. so um no i i encourage others to to test what we found and what others have found and and this issue definitely is not settled it could even be your freshman high school <laughs> science fair project yeah. for a kid named what just say declan there you go uh, I got one last question before you tell people how to find you and how to apply for your... Do you take on students? Yeah, definitely. We've got... Um, do you uh, got too many applicants already? We have quite a few. Um, so you're not looking for more applicants? Well, we always welcome applicants. Yeah, why not? Yeah, right. yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, uh, here's my question for you. And this gets into your heart and soul and integrity as a, as a scientist. Uh, I remember saying to a researcher one time, they were talking about a project, and I said, well, what do you hope happens? And he told me the reasons why that that's not really a thing that you're supposed to do, you know? I'm like, oh, that makes sense. Yeah. Because it'll cause a bias. Yeah. Right? But when you were doing it with the, uh, when you're doing the work with the stone points, there has to be some little part of you. And maybe you can successfully <laughs> put it aside. Yeah. There has to be some part of you is like rooting for the points. Oh, look, I went on. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, um, you got to be kind of like. I, I went on a PBS national documentary on the people in the Americas. And I said on national television, the Clovis Point could take down any Ice Age beast. Like, I thought for a really yeah. long time that that's what Clovis Points could do. And I said it on national TV. Um, the evidence at the moment does not support that hypothesis. Mm. So I, I changed my mind based on the evidence. Um, but some little party was kind of, the, the kid in you was rooting for the point. Yeah. And, yeah. and there may be, again, like I said, at the end of the day, this is a physics question and an engineering question. Maybe there's some physics or, or engineering trick that Clovis folks understood about their weaponry that we have not unlocked yet that will make their, their points more deadly and, and lethal than they currently are in the lab. Mm-hmm. Got it. All right. Tell people what, how to kind of find you, remind everybody where you're at and, and what sorts of things you're working on that, that might be of interest to our audience. Yeah. So, uh, we're at the Kent State Experimental Archaeology Laboratory and, uh, we're working on understanding ancient technologies made out of any material, ceramic, stone, metals, leather, whatever. Um, and we just want to understand how this stuff was made and, and how it worked. And, and once we can understand how this stuff was made and how it worked, 
we can understand why it appears the way it does in the archaeological record. And we mm-hmm. can understand the evolution of technology over the last three million years. Tell me about the primal points project you're involved in. So as any scientific field matures, it, it starts to contribute to society. So physics is a very old field, and now we have all sorts of societal benefits from physics, and same with biology and medicine. Right? Well, experimental archaeology is relatively young, but we feel that it should be uh, starting to contribute to society in, in different ways. And so we start to think, how could that be? And so what we decided to, to do was design a new type of broadhead that performs similarly to modern broadheads, but looks like ancient chip stone ones. So this way you can go hunting, bow hunting now, and, and hunt a buck or, or whatever with a Clovis point or a notched archaic point. And so we've actually got examples of the, the technology where essentially what we do is we've got aluminum casts of actual stone chipped artifacts or arrowheads. And then what we do is through a special pouring technique, we can put a steel blade on the inside of it. Um, so it's got the same razor sharp edge and the durability of a modern broadhead. Um, so, you know, you can, and it screws into modern arrow shafts, uh, you know, just the way any other broadhead would. Um, and so, but it would look like a, a chip stone one. Can you make, are you gonna make a Folsom one? We can make any time period. So you can actually tailor your bow hunt um, to the, the area you're going to. So if you're going to Europe, you can take a, a European style um, of, of ancient arrowhead, or if you're going to Australia or Africa, take an African style or anywhere, right? So you yeah. can tail, you can and use And it's it. got the, the weight, it's got the weight aerodynamics. Of stone, but yeah. it's got the sharp and durability of steel and modern broadheads. Hmm. So when are you gonna make a Folsom one? We can make those right now. Well, not here in the studio, but you could make one. We could make one. Send yeah. us a couple over. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I'll fling it at something. That's no problem. Uh, are you on social media? I hate social media. That's totally fine. Yeah. Uh, so I'm just, I've, it's one of my roommates was involved in. You're not like at napping or. No, (laughs) no, no. Um, That'd be a good social network. Listen, man, there's all kinds of bad shit you can say about social media. But if you had a social media site and it was like, hey, check this point out. Here's what we think is going on with this and blah, blah, blah. I'd I'd subscribe to that. And I'm kind of a liar. Like our lab does have a Twitter account. Um, But I don't, I personally, I try to avoid social media when I can. Um, Dude, Wild Turkey Doc, man. There's a guy, Wild Turkey, like Mike Chamberlain, Wild Turkey Doc. He has a social media channel. He shares his research. It's fascinating. I think that they shouldn't be allowed to have any social media accounts besides his social media account. That's pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. He shares his research. Academic Twitter is pretty cool. And then he's got like, uh, they'll put a tracking device on a turkey and he'll publish, and just on social media, he'll have like what all the turkey was up to. That's cool. Yeah. It doesn't need to be like, it's not like, it doesn't need to be you talking about, I don't know, remodeling your kitchen. It could be like uh, about stone stuff. Yeah. No, that's true. That's true. Um, But uh, yeah, I don't know why. Just uh, social media makes me nervous. Well, for good reason. Yeah. But there's, there's power in it as well. That's true. For now, people can email us questions that we forward to men. Yeah, for now, though, if people have a question for well, you. I have an email address. You want all these emails? Mm-hmm. You don't. Oh, okay. <laughs> I mean, I, they yeah. can find you anyway. Yeah, that's Well, true. let them go through the hassle of finding Yeah, that's fine. If not, send it to us and <laughs> in, in, in the esteemed Corey Calkins. Will, uh, no, that's cool. Somebody would we'll, be like, I once put a Clovis point through a car door. <laughs> <laughs> You're telling me a car door is tough? Yeah. All right, man. Thanks so much for coming on. Thanks for my beautiful knife. Yeah, no. My Salutrian. Laurel leaf. Laurel leaf.
And thank you for having me. This has been awesome. Super yeah, appreciate fun. all the stuff you brought, man. Yeah, it's going to be fun going back. Uh, baggage claim. There, I was like, what the hell is in here? Yeah, for sure. So, just, like, just my weapons. Just my weapons. Out of stone. All right, man. Thank you very much. Hey, thank you. This show is sponsored in part by BetterHelp. It is a simple truth. No matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you, and how you manage them can make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that they need and that meets them where they are and helps them get through challenges. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible. It's simple to use. You can connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's BetterHelp.com. Telling you what, Decked is a game changer. Decked has completely changed how I load, organize my truck. All my stuff that I want is always in there, out of my way, and secure. It's perfect. If you own a pickup truck that you use, you know, like a truck, the decked drawer system gives you weatherproof storage for all your gear. You can lock it up, too. You keep your tools and gear organized, job site or out in the field. Go to deck.com slash meat eater to receive free shipping. Go to decked.com slash meat eater and get yourself some free shipping.